five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Wednesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program in our nine days format. Later on this morning, we'll hear the historic uh, eulogy that my father gave for the Lubavitcher Rebbe back uh, 20 years ago today in the 3rd of Av. On the Shloshim of the uh, Rebbe's passing uh, back in uh, 1994. We'll begin with um, a series that we started late yesterday. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of Rabbi Shmuel Salant from the series entitled Builders of the Holy Land. Lectures by Rabbi Beryl Wine available at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWEIN.com. This lecture concerns itself with one of the uh, most fascinating personalities of the 19th and early 20th centuries, but a person who's very little known in the modern Jewish world, and that's Rabbi Shmuel Salant. Rabbi Shmuel Salant was the rabbi of Jerusalem for 70 years, from 1839 to 1909. He died, uh, he was in his, well in his 90s when he died, and he is a person that had uh, a tremendous influence on the land of Israel and on the Jewish people generally. And he was a very fascinating personality. Anybody that can survive 70 years as being a rabbi uh, for that alone deserves a lecture. And anybody that can survive 70 years being the rabbi in Jerusalem deserves a double lecture. So we're going to have two lectures on Rabbi Salant. He was born in 1816 in a small village, Vilkinik, near Bialystok. And his father was a well-known rabbi, but his father died when he was a very young child, six or seven. And therefore, he was really raised uh, without parents. And in general, we'll see that his life had uh, a great deal of shadow to it wasn't all, uh, uh, it certainly wasn't easy. Now, he, uh, we, I've discussed with you that some of the personages that we have discussed here are people who had enormously uh, gifted minds and at an early age appeared to, their genius appeared. Others uh didn't develop till later. He was, uh, however, such a genius that by the time he was four years old, he he was well known already for Talmudic erudition at the age of four. He was an uh, he was a raving genius. I mean, he, there was nobody that was uh, his equal in those terms. But again, it'll be fascinating to know that his reputation was not made in scholarship as much as it was made in communal leadership. He was, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he became orphaned when he was very young, and he was there was nobody to take care of him. So when he was, there was a custom among Jews in Eastern Europe and Lithuania that uh, homeless children or orphaned children or children that had no one to take care of them automatically became the ward of the rabbi. And if the child was gifted, so then they sent him to great rabbi. And that it was a, a compact, so to speak, something that was understood 
that the rabbi would take him in and uh, help raise him. Again, in our society, it's hard to uh, to imagine that type of situation, but it was very common in Eastern Europe in the 19th centuries. And since in the 19th century, uh, Jewish life in Eastern Europe was very, very depressing. It was very sad. Uh, epidemics, malnutrition, pogroms, uh, life expectancy was... Uh, Jewish life expectancy was in the 40s. So because of all of that, uh, one can imagine that these cases were not rare. When he was seven, he came to Vilna. And in Vilna, there was a famous rabbi, Rabbi Avale Pasveler, he was known. He was one of the great uh, geniuses, a Talmud of the Gaon of Vilna, uh, a uh, colleague of Rabbi Chaim Valozhener, uh, one of the great Lithuanian figures of his time. And he uh, took care of this young child, even though Revavala himself was in advanced years. He was in his 80s. He was taking care of a seven-year-old child. That's not something that is easy to do. Uh, children, God ordained that children uh, should be taken care of people when they're still young. When people become older, it's much harder to deal with children. It requires an element, not just of patience, but even a physical strength that is not, that's not present any longer. I remember that I was once in the house of a famous Rosh Yeshiva, uh, who, uh, had married a woman that was much, much younger than he was, almost 30 years younger than he was. And he was, when I was there, he was already in his 60s, and they had the three or four year old son. And the, I was in the study talking with the Rosh Hashim, and the kid came in bouncing a ball, you know, and bounced the ball all over the room and everything. And he looked at me like he said, you know, like, what am I supposed to do about this now, right? I'm, I'm 65 years old. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, there is a, uh, it's a remarkable uh, vignette here that for two years he was raised in the house of Avila Pasfiller, who studied with him. And uh, Reb Shmuel Salant said in later years when he was asked uh, to what he attributed his great longevity to live uh, well into the 90s, so he said because Reb Avila gave him a blessing. Reb Avila blessed him that he would live a long time. And there's a, the legend about it is that Reb Avila blessed him if the kid wouldn't annoy him, he told, you know, I mean, that's the, the other side of the coin, right? That if he... Uh, because he was a was a genius, and geniuses have within themselves a certain amount of mischievousness uh, that goes hand in hand. After two years, he moved to the city of Kaidan. Kaidan was also one of these famous little villages, cities in Lithuania that had a tradition of great rabbis, great rabbinic scholars. And uh, therefore, the city, even though it was uh, small in number and poor in economy, and it, there, there wasn't any reason inherent that the city should have greatness to it, but it was well known because of the fact that it had a, it had had over the centuries a string of very famous rabbinic uh, figures who had served as rabbi in that town. When uh, he came there in the year 1825. So the rabbi of Kedan was Rabbi Abraham Shimon Traub. 
who was uh, also a colleague and a student of Reb Chaim Valozhiner. The Valozhiner yeshiva had just then opened, and uh, Reb Chaim Valozhiner, who was the disciple, the main disciple of the Gaon of Vilna, uh, had a cadre of students uh, that were rabbis in Lithuania who helped him in the founding of the yeshiva in Valozhin. And Rabbi Avram Shimon Traub was one of them. He stayed in Kedan for approximately six years. And when he was 14, he married, and he married the daughter of the rabbi of Kedan. Now, marrying at 14 was accepted practice in Jewish Lithuania in the early 19th century. And then Nitziva Valozhin married at 14. Uh, it was a combination of many things, a very uh, short life expectancy, uh, uh, maturing very early, uh, combination of a lot of, and the social climate. And in the non-Jewish world also, early marriages were extremely common in the Polish and Lithuanian peasantry. Later on in the yeshiva world, in the uh, late 1800s and in the 1900s, yeshiva students got married late because of the fact that they wanted to continue their studies, etc., so the age was postponed till the late 20s or sometimes even th early 30s. But at this period of time, uh, almost universally in the Jewish world, certainly in the Hasidic world and even in the uh, world of Lithuanian Jewry, uh, marriages were uh, in the adolescent years. So he became the son-in-law of the rabbi of Kaidan, and he, uh, it was like accepted that he would eventually become the rabbi of Kedan because he was the rabbi's son-in-law and he was one of the great geniuses. He was an Ilui. And uh, so in the natural course of events, he would become the rabbi. However, the marriage was a very unhappy marriage. And after a number of years, they, he divorced his wife. Uh, they just could not, uh, they could not come to any, uh, any modus vivendi in their home. And, uh, he divorced his wife, so he had to leave Kaidan, and he moved to the village of Salant, where he acquires this last name, Rabbi Shmuel Salant. In Lithuania, at least, it was very common to be called on the name of the town. There were no last names per se in the Jewish world yet, and the Tsar would not order the Jews to have last names for another 40 years, and therefore uh, the name uh, Salant only uh, meant that he came from this village of Salant. Now, Salant was, again, one of these uh, villages that God created. Uh, it had no, it's one of the most famous names in the Jewish world today because of three people who came, who lived in Salant at the same time, and whose lives were inextricably bound one to another. First, and we'll, I'll talk, uh, God willing, about all three of them, uh, Rabbi Zundel of Salant, Rabbi Yisroel Salant, and Rabbi Shmuel Salant. And because of that, they are the ones that made the village immortal even though the village itself is, uh, in Yiddish, he used to say, as big as a yawn, right? That has no, uh, 
There's nothing to recommend it as being a place of importance. In Salant, the rabbi of Salant was a man called Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude. And Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude, the, uh, his nickname was Rabbi Hirschel Tosfos, because he used to study Tosfos. He had the, the analytic ability to take the most difficult sections of the Talmud and of the commentaries of the Talmud and analyze it, break it down, break it down, break it down, break it down to the end, so that one saw the entire, uh, all the fibers that went to make the entire cloth. And this analytic method would become very popular later. It became the method in the Lithuanian yeshivas. Uh, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik would popularize it in Valozhin. So he was like the forerunner of it. He was like the pioneer. Even though, in essence, if we look back at it, this really was the method of study of the Gaon of Vilna, Reb Chaim Valozhiner, etc., of intensive analytic study uh, that delved into the matter itself and removed all extraneous comparisons. Uh, that I don't want to be misunderstood, but uh, if uh, the problem with Pilpul is that you don't see the trees for the forest. And the problem, right, you don't see the individual case because you got the whole forest that's, that's just flying about you. And they went to the other extreme, that there was no forest, there was only the tree. Uh, naturally, as in everything else, there is a happy medium somewhere. But he was a very, very famous Rav and a brilliant young men came to study. He didn't have a yeshiva per se, but they came to study with him, and he always had a cadre of 10, 15, 20 young men who came to study with him. So after his divorce, Rabbi Shmuel left Kaidan, and he went to Salant in order to uh, study with Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude. And three years, Breuder said that he had a seven-tiered candelabra. He had seven great students. So the three that I mentioned, Reb Zundel, Reb Yisrael, and Shmuel Salant were three. Reb Itzel was four. And Reb Alexander Mesha Lapidus, who later was a Roman Raisan, was five. He had seven great students. And they were all there at one time. So it was, uh, in modern-day terminology, we would say it was probably the greatest think tank that Lithuanian Jewry had in Torah in one place at one time. And they all were geniuses, and they all had tremendous ability to study. So they made a compact. They studied 20 out of 24 hours. And uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Muslim movement, and Reb Shmuel of Salant were Chevrusas. They learned together. They were the pair that learned together. And Reb Zundel, who was older than they were, uh, was uh, uh, like, well, what shall I say? He was the Mashgiach. He influenced them. He, uh, he was like their mentor. They were younger, and he was their mentor. Uh, Reb Zundel was a person that was a businessman. He had a small business. But his business was not business. His business was Torah. His business, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter described him as a ladder 
whose base is on earth and whose heaven and whose head reaches the heavens. So that even though it looked like he was in business, he really was in God's business. And he was the strongest single influence on both of them, on Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, because he is the one that encouraged Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the study of Musr and later in the development of the Musr movement. And he was the strongest influence on Reb Shmuel Salant because we will see that he became his father-in-law. That Reb Shmuel Salant married Reb Zundel's daughter. And uh, the uh, poverty in the house uh, was not to be believed. Uh, when... Uh, when, well, I'm getting ahead of the story, but the vignette is important. Montefiore became a very good friend of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. So Montefiore, who came in a golden carriage and white, white horses and who, uh, who lived in Forche and, you know, and was, uh, you know, he had the... So when he came to see Rabbi Shmuel Salant in Yerushalayim, so Rabbi Shmuel Salant lived in the courtyard right next to the Churve Shul. You know, today where the great arch is, they're going to rebuild that shul someday. And he lived in one of the hovels, the basements underneath, that there was no window in the house. There was no window in the house. We're not talking about heat or running water. There was no window in the house. And he lived in a two-room hovel, and he had the boxes for furniture. So Montefiore once said to him, doesn't your wife complain? And Shmuel, who had a very good sense of humor, said it's better than what her father had. Right? Like I uplifted her standard of living. Because Reb Zundel and Salant had even less, if that's imaginable. And uh, to a certain extent, their poverty was a badge of honor to them. Because uh, then they... If a person really can do it, then one needs nothing from the world. Then, then one can look away from the world. It's, uh, in, in our time, it's very, even, it's very difficult even to speak in those terms. But they, but they were able to live in those terms. It really, uh, that, that was not their problem in life. Now, his father-in-law left. Salant in 1837 to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem. He moved to Jerusalem. His father-in-law moved when he was 58 years old, and his father-in-law said that he has years left, and that he knows that in heaven they promised him 30 years in Jerusalem. So he's got to go now, because he said uh, to go to Jerusalem just to be an old person and not be able to do anything. So he went. You're talking about 1837. Uh, it was not an easy trip. You didn't get on an El Al plane, and you're not there in ten and a half hours, and they don't show you any movies, and they don't give you any uh, any food to eat, and uh, the whole thing is just, it was months, and it was danger. But he went, and he established himself in Jerusalem. When he established himself in Jerusalem, he wrote home to his son-in-law and said that you should also come. He wrote him that the holiness of Jerusalem, the atmosphere of Jerusalem is such that one's spiritual development is so enhanced that why should he waste himself in the exile? So he, uh, 
I mean, he said it as a matter of, of his own uh, experience. So Jerusalem and the land of Israel is, uh, like many other things, it's a litmus test of the person. The greater the person, the more he feels in Jerusalem. The greater the person, the more he feels in the land of Israel. The lesser the person, so, you know, then it's like Buenos Aires, or, or it isn't like Buenos Aires, either. But there's nothing to do in town. And the person of Rebzundel's stature, a person of Rebzundel's character, so he came to Jerusalem, so he wrote to his son-in-law, he said, like, this is, you know, this is the Garden of Eden, this is paradise. And God, so to speak, is palpable here, you can touch it. The uh, Florida would say, come on down, right? That's what he told him to do. But as all sons-in-law, Shmuel was not anxious to, to follow his father's advice, initial, father-in-law's advice initially. And instead, in 1837, he went to the yeshiva in Valozhin. He left Salant, and he went to the great yeshiva in Valozhin. And there he was not treated as a student, but he was treated as a member of the faculty even though he still was a very young man. He was only 21 years old. But his fame as a scholar and his erudition and his, his good name had gone before him to such an extent uh, that uh, he was treated as a member of the faculty rather than as a student in the yeshiva. And he stayed there for two years. He perhaps would have stayed the balance of his life. And if he would have stayed there, he would have undoubtedly had a uh, an educational position in Valozhin because of his uh, greatness. But uh, as in all matters, God interferes. God uh, pushes us. And in 1838, he developed a very bad asthma and a touch of tuberculosis. So he went, uh, the doctor uh, told him that he has to go to a warmer climate, that Lithuania would be fatal for him if he stayed in Lithuania. And then the recipe and the prescription in Europe was to go to either Spain or Italy. So Reb Shmuel said, I should go to Spain or Italy. If I have to go to a warmer climate, I'm going to Israel. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He remembered the letter that his father-in-law sent him. He and his wife then had a two-year-old son, their first child. So upon consultation with her, they agreed that they would leave Lithuania and move to Jerusalem, move to Jerusalem. It's interesting, the doctor, he himself records it, that the doctor told him that even if he went to Italy, he probably would have no more than five to ten years to live. And he lived, uh, he lived uh, 70 years more. So uh, I knew a Jew in Miami Beach. It's one of, that's a digression, but it's an important story. It's one of the things I remember. I knew a Jew in Miami Beach that uh, in his, uh, when he was 37 years old, had had two heart attacks and a major surgery, major operation for cancer. And the doctors told him that he probably would not live more than two years. And he was a very wealthy man. So he decided that he would move to Florida. And he cashed in all of his uh, 
assets, and he bought an annuity policy. And the annuity policy promised to pay him for 55 years. And he outlived it. He outlived it. I knew it at the end. I'll tell you a remarkable, tell you even a more remarkable story. So he had a big annuity policy, and he was a tremendous Baldstalker. And uh, he had given the Ponovisharov a great deal of money, always over the years. So when he was 92 or 93, so the policy stopped paying. And he was absolutely, except for his Social Security check, he was absolutely destitute. And the Ponovisharov sent him money every month. Ponovizhirov sent him money every month to support it. But he always used to tell me, he says, you know, the doctor, he said, if I would have known, he said, I would have bought the annuity for 60 years. I only bought it for 55. But life is strange. It's, uh, it's never the way we think it is. So he went to, he went to Jerusalem. He took his wife and his son and he went to Jerusalem. And he arrived there in 1840. On the way to Jerusalem, he went through Damascus. He went through Damascus. What they did is they went south through Russia. They went overland. They went through Turkey and they went through Syria. It was all part of the... Syria then was not an independent country. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was all under Turkey. So he went to the Jewish community in Damascus. So he was Hoshina Rabo at night. He was in the Sukkah of the Chacham, of the Svartic chief rabbi in Damascus, in the Sukkot, the night of Hashina Rabbah. That night, Montefiore, Sir Moses Montefiore, was also in Damascus, because that was the year of the Damascus blood libel. There was a famous terrible blood libel in which a uh, Capuchin priest and his uh, helper were found murdered. And the... Uh, Priests, associates, accused the Jews of murdering them in order to take their blood to bait matzahs. And the French consul general in Syria, in Damascus, confirmed it, that that's what happened. And the Ottoman Turks arrested five or six of the, of the Jewish leaders of Damascus and under indescribable torture uh, extracted confession that Jews used blood for Passover, and that that's probably what happened, that these people were killed. And they did so, Nebuch, they confessed because of the torture that they were subjected to. Montefiore traveled from London to Damascus to defend the matter and to release the prisoners. And he went to the Sultan of Turkey. He had the protection of Queen Victoria and of uh, Lord Palmerston uh, and of others and, and the, of the British uh, Empire, and therefore he was a personage to be reckoned with, and he was able to successfully defend the Jews from the, uh, regarding that blood libel. In fact, the Sultan then issued the, uh, like an official order that never again in the Turkish Empire would such a thing be allowed, such a blood libel, and anyone that says that about Jews will automatically uh, be punished. And he obtained the release of those people. So Montefiore was there in Damascus at the same time that Rabbi Shmuel Salant was in Damascus. And they met in the sukkah, the night of Ashina Rabbah, in the sukkah of the chief rabbi of Damascus. Now Montefiore was a very 
great Jew, but he was a completely uh, unlettered, uh, simple Jew in terms of Jewish knowledge. He didn't know the difference between uh, between something that was a commandment from the Torah, what was a custom, etc. So he knew from his youth that there was a custom that on the night of a shiner rabba, certain Jews stayed up all night. He was exhausted. He was exhausted from his efforts, etc. He came to the sukkah, and he uh, and he he felt his his exhaust his exhaustion overwhelming him. Nevertheless, he thought that staying up the night of a shiner rabba is equal to blowing shofar, or having an esrig, or eating in the sukkah, whatever. So he asked the chief rabbi uh, what he should do. So the chief rabbi of Damascus, the Sephardic chief rabbi, he said, well, you're, you know, you're from Europe, ask the European rabbi. So he asked Rabbi Shmuel Salant, and Rabbi Shmuel Salant uh, naturally found a way, uh, most rabbis find a way to put people to sleep, and they found a way that he would be able to uh, to sleep, and he was appreciative of it, and they became friends. And we'll see that from this chance meeting, many great things happened. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, again, as how God does things, the development of the Jewish city of Jerusalem is based on this chance meeting in the sukkah, the night of Ashina Rabbah in Damascus in 1840. When he finally arrived in Jerusalem, what he did is they went overland to Beirut, and in Beirut they took a boat to Jaffa, and then from Jaffa, they took donkeys up to Jerusalem. And he and his wife and three-year-old son arrived in Jerusalem in 1840. And he found an Ashkenazi community there that numbered 500 people. The Ashkenazi community, whereas the Sephardi community was close to 8,000. And the Ashkenazi community was sadly discriminated against by the Sephardim and by the Arabs. I'll just give you one example. The, uh, it would not be until uh, it would not be until 1875 that the Ashkenazi community would have permission to have its own shechita. They have its own abattoir to kill animals. And the reason for that was because the Muslims, the Muslims, uh, they don't eat kosher, but the Muslims will not eat meat that is slaughtered by an infidel. Muslims, first of all, only eat from uh, kosher animals. They only eat beef and, uh, and lamb and goats. And uh, they don't eat pork or any of the other things. And they also will not eat meat that is slaughtered by an infidel. A Christian is an infidel. Their definition of infidel was that anybody that is not from the Levant is an infidel. Anybody that's European. And therefore the Ashkenazic Jews were infidels. And that being the case, therefore... They would not give them permission to slaughter. And it took uh, over 30 years of lobbying and of bribes and of all sorts of machinations until 
Finally, in the middle 1870s, the Ashkenazic Jews received permission to uh, have their own shechita, to have their own abattoir, because there are differences in the shechita and in the laws and the ritual between the Ashkenazim and the Svardim. Uh, today in Israel, there's pretty much a unified shechita which meets the requirements of all. But at that time, that was that was not there yet. Now, the Arabs, when they allowed the shechita to occur, so the Arabs did something which is a... Uh, have to understand what it was for Jews to live under the Arabs. We are, no, we, especially we who come from Eastern European background, so we have no appreciation of the discrimination, of the hatred, of the, uh, of the humiliation which was part of the everyday life of Jews in Arab countries. So when they allowed the uh, Jews to have, the Ashkenazim to have their own shechita, they required that before the blessing is made on the shechita, and before you shech, so you have to make a bracha. Baruch atah Hashem lakeinu malachalom asher kitshonu misuzovet zivonu ala shechita. Before they made the bracha, the sheikh had to say out loud, Basham alala arachman arachim, which means... In the name of the great and holy Allah. Otherwise, he couldn't shecht. So there were all types of shyness, whether that was permitted. And then the rabbis decided it was permitted. Then the Arabs wanted that it should be said, not before the Jew makes the bracha, but before the Jew shechts. So that it would now be an interruption between the bracha of the Jew and the actual shechita. So the Jews always paid bribes to be able to say it before. And we're talking here in the 1870s. We're talking 100 years ago. We're not talking uh, in the Middle Ages. So the, uh, the situation with the, uh, with the Muslim rulers, with the Arabs generally, has always been a uh, very, very difficult one, to put it mildly. So when he came to Yerushalayim, the Svardim were in control of the Jewish community. The Svardim had an official rabbi who was called the Chacham Bashi. The Chacham Bashi was an official rabbi who represented the Jewish community to the Turkish authorities. It's the forerunner of the chief rabbi. The Svardim always had a chief rabbi. Rabbi Cook in the 1920s will introduce the concept of an Ashkenazic chief rabbi. After the Turks... They changed the name of the chief rabbi, the Svardim, from Chacham Bashi, which was the Turkish name, to Rishon Letzion, which is the Hebrew name, the first, the, the first of, the, of Zion, meaning the, the, uh, Svardic chief rabbi, and that's what he's known as today. When he came to Yerushalayim, so they moved in next door to his father-in-law, to Rebzundel. So I've described to you the palace that he moved into, with two rooms, you can see it today, by the way. That's it's in the Chotzer. It's on ex, it's on exhibit. You go all the way down. I mean, I'm personally fascinated by it because my grandfather uh, was uh, was yet on the Bezdin of Reb Shmuel Salant in Jerusalem at the turn of the century, and my mother, Allah Shalom, was born in the old city in Bate Machse. So when, when I grew up, I always heard in the house, they always spoke about Reb Shemur Salant like he was, you know, 
member of the family, somebody that they had known. So, Reb Shmuel Salant had undertaken, he together with Reb Yisrael Salanter had undertaken a vow never to hold an official rabbinic position. When he came to Jerusalem, so they came to him and they said, you're the man, A, you're young, B, you're the greatest scholar, C, you have the organizational ability, and if we don't have a great rabbi, the Ashkenazi community will... Uh, just deteriorate. It will disappear. So you have to do it. JM in the AM, we are in the midst of Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture about Rabbi Shmuel Salant from the Builders of the Holy Land series. We'll continue in just a couple of minutes here at JM in the AM. As we say good morning on this Wednesday, it's July 30th, day three in the month of Menachem Av, the year 5774, Tavshin and Want to say good morning. And wish good luck to those who are gathering for the bike for Chai. This is a uh, an amazing and incredible effort that has uh, raised an enormous amount of money for the um, for Camp Simcha, and Camp Simcha is getting ready for tomorrow for the world's greatest finish line. The riders leave today. They've got good weather, at least to non-riders. It looks like good weather. They may prefer to drop cooler and drop more wet, maybe. But, well, maybe not wet. But anyway, uh, Bike for Chai, if you're on it, Yashikach, congratulations. They are just under $4 million. We announced the other day 3.6. They are now at $3.997 million, which means they're basically like uh, less than $2,500 away. From four million, which is pretty amazing, pretty incredible. Again, to uh, all the bike for hires, good luck today. Hope you're listening in to the Nachum Siegel Network on your app as you bike up to Camp Simcha, and they again look forward to seeing you uh, there tomorrow at the world's greatest finish line. So it's bike for high day, and they should be very proud of what they've uh, accomplished till now and what they're going to be accomplishing over the next 48 hours. J.M. and the A.M. later this morning will play for you the uh, speech, the hesped, the eulogy that was given 20 years ago today on the 3rd of Menachem Av, my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe on his Shloshim. We will do that in the 8 o'clock hour. Plenty more coming up, of course, on this Wednesday morning broadcast as we continue on a nine days format. A close eye on what's going on in Israel. We'll give you the latest in a moment. 64 degrees, 75% humidity, winds are west at 13 miles per hour. Uh, mostly sunny today with a high temperature of 81. Then tonight, clear skies, low 65. And um, afternoon thunderstorms for tomorrow with a high temperature Thursday of 80 degrees. Right now, Yerushalayim is at 91.1. Tel Aviv and Haifa at 88. A lot at 100. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missora are waking up to 55 degrees, heading up to 75 later on. As we say good morning here at JM and the AM, the latest... Jerusalem Post blog, whatever has been blogged since noon Israel time. Former President Shimon Peres told reporters Wednesday that Israel must work to ensure that the Gaza Strip is once again placed under the rule of the PA. Speaking to the press after visiting wounded soldiers in the south, the former president said that the solution to the Gaza crisis must be diplomatic. And uh, he, the former president said Gaza was taken from Abbas in a coup d'etat. Abbas is the legitimate ruler whose position in Gaza is recognized by 
the international community. Just before 1 p.m. in Israel, a rocket siren sounded in the greater Beersheba and Ashkelon areas. At 1.20 p.m., which was just minutes ago, a rocket was intercepted by the Iron Dome over the Merchavim Regional Council area and the Negev, and police believe three additional rockets landed in open territory. No injuries or damage, thank God, in the attack. And then finally at 1.30, about 15 minutes ago, rocket sirens sounded in Ashdod and its surrounding communities. Those who have the Red Alert app, I'm sure you are uh, realizing just what is happening over the last, I don't know, 48 to 72 hours or so as the rockets continue to fly into Israel. And we pray to God that nobody be injured and that these soldiers are able to accomplish their mission without any wounds or fatalities. J.M. and the A.M. at 14 minutes before 7 o'clock. Continue to pray for the peace in Israel for our brothers and sisters. We uh, saw and we tweeted this out yesterday, put it on Facebook. We saw the uh, amazing gesture, but not just gesture, a real strategic move. A real strategic move that was taken yesterday. Um representatives of Ger and Bells and Vizhnitz and the Sans Hasidic groups and others have announced that they'll be canceling the usual summer vacation activities which begin Tisha B'Av for students and they will maintain a substantial study program in Yeshiva. This is, um, this is a result of uh, not just uh, talking the talk and saying that it is, in fact, the Torah study that helps defend Israel, but actually walking the walk. And based on what I read yesterday, a decision is going to be made soon by the leader of the Lithuanian yeshiva movement in Israel about what to do regarding what's called Benazmanim, vacation time. But this move from these major Hasidic groups means so much to so many. And they are willing and ready to keep the yeshivas open even during the expected break because um, they rightfully believe that the study of Torah is going to be a great help to the IDF and the Jewish people. So a big yeshikach, and let's hope that list increases and that together everybody does what they need to do. We'll be heading to Israel next week. We'll be um, broadcasting from Stay Road on Friday. We are scheduled to be... Uh, at a variety of great places, including a Yom NCSY on Thursday, Stay Road on Friday. We'll be uh, with Nefesh Benefesh as their next flight lands uh, August the 11th. It leaves New York City. So we have a very, very special trip in solidarity with a lot of great people. And um, we hope that everybody who has trips scheduled is able to keep the commitments to go to Israel. That would be wonderful. Um, I don't want to give any undue pressure or influence. I just want to remind everybody how much it's appreciated if you're able to keep those commitments to get to Israel on a, uh, on schedule as, uh, as originally planned. By the way, uh, yeah, uh, Monday night I saw a representative of, um, of Senator Gillibrand from New York and I expressed that I, I really thought that the Senator Gillibrand would be among the, um, the government officials that would be a little bit more outspoken about what's going on in Israel. 
And I did not even realize that on Monday the senator had done the following. And therefore I will uh, give her her due and thank her for being there for Israel. Senators Ted Cruz and Kirsten Gillibrand, (laughs) Texas and New York. Senators Ted Cruz and Kirsten Gillibrand united on Monday to push a resolution condemning Hamas and its war against Israel, building on their burgeoning bipartisan alliance. The resolution from the Texas Republican and New York Democrats strongly criticizes Hamas for using innocent civilians as human shields, tags Hamas and other terrorist groups with the blame for thousands of rocket attacks on Israel launched from Gaza, and demands that PLO Chairman Mahmoud Abbas condemn Hamas's tactics. Israel has reported that Hamas is keeping civilians in areas marked for attack by Israel, an idea deemed deplorable by Gillibrand, who called on the global community to, quote, stand up to Hamas. The um, the Cruz-Gillibrand resolution in the Senate is a companion to the House resolution nearly two weeks ago was introduced uh, by a Republican in Florida and a Democrat in Florida. The resolution marks a second major partnership between the liberal Gillibrand and conservative Cruz. Last year, Cruz and Duran Paul joined Gillibrand's effort to take the military chain of command out of sexual assault investigations. That effort failed, but the support of Paul and Cruz helped solidify the bipartisan nature of Gillibrand's proposal. So, um, again, kudos to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and, of course, Senator Ted Cruz on this uh, latest effort. Nine minutes before... 7 o'clock, it's Wednesday at JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. So he made a compromise. He never called himself the rabbi of Jerusalem. But he said he was a more horoa. A more horoa means that he answered shyless. He answered questions. Anybody that had a question in halacha, they came to Shmuel Salant. So he was like the head of the Beth Din. But he never claimed to be the rabbi. And we'll see during his 70-year reign... He imported many great, four times, he imported great uh, scholars and rabbis from Europe to serve as the official rabbi of Jerusalem. But as long as Rav Shmuel Salant was there in the community, even if one had the title of being the official rabbi, no one held him to be the official rabbi over Rav Shmuel Salant because of Rav Shmuel Salant's erudition and of his greatness, etc., this churve shul, that's called the churve Reb Chosid. The churve, it was a, it was called the churve because it was destroyed. The Arabs had destroyed it. The Arabs have an old history of destroying synagogues. And he was determined to rebuild it. Now, when he came in 1840, so by 1843 they had plans to rebuild. They were only missing the money which in Jewish life is always this uh, present, but that's not the main matter. But what happened was that a great dispute broke out now, which is par for the course in Jerusalem, because the poor people said, if you go on a building fund drive, then nobody's going to have money for us. Because the money that comes from Chutzlars, the money that comes from Europe, is going to be spent on this building, it's going to be spent on the synagogue, and that's the money that we live from. So there was a bitter battle, a bitter dispute. And here was one, here, it is really on this issue that Shmuel Salant, so to speak, cut his teeth 
that his leadership became became accepted by all because he said that he undertook that there would be no diminution in the funds for the poor and that there would be money to rebuild the building. And in 1848, he left Jerusalem to go on a fundraising drive in Europe, which again, it was unheard of. Uh, there had always been fundraisers who left to raise money, but that the chief of the community should leave to raise money, that was unheard of. But because of the fact that he made this commitment, so he felt that it was incumbent upon him to uh, leave. So in 1848, he left Jerusalem, and he traveled through to Russia, Germany, Holland, and England. And in England, his friend Montefiore made him a parlor meeting. I'll just show you that where the world has not changed in the 140 years. He uh, helped him raise a substantial amount of money. He was a brother-in-law. Montefiore was a brother-in-law of Lord Nathan Rothschild. The Rothschilds gave him a large donation. And when he returned, he returned in triumph because he had raised sufficient funds to rebuild the synagogue, plus he had more money for the poor than ever was had before. Uh, that itself enhanced his position in the community. In Yiddish, there's a phrase, Dervas hot the meya hot the deya. The one that has the hundred is the one that has the influence also. The one that raises the money, the one that uh, that shows his ability to be able to uh, finance the project, so he naturally has the most to say about the project. People listen to it. Now, he had founded in 1846 a small... When he came, there was no school for the Ashkenazic children to learn. They either went to the Sephardic or they learned at home. He founded a school, an elementary school, called Yeshivas Eitz Chaim, which is the oldest yeshiva in Jerusalem today. And this school was right next door to the shul in the churve. So Yeshiva Seitz Chaim, he lived in the basement, and Yeshiva Seitz Chaim was like the top floor of that house. And next door was the was the shul. And again, uh, in order to support the yeshiva, that was also part of his fundraising venture. In 1850, by 1850, in other words, four years after the yeshiva began, he was so successful that it now had 300 students, and he was able to raise the level, so it became a yeshiva gedola as well. The custom was that they would stay only a certain period of time in studies, and then they would go to work. So he found that a yeshiva gedola that they could stay even a longer period of time. I want to read to you, I have here a copy of the charter uh, from 1839, uh, 1849, of the yeshivas Eitz Chaim, of how, uh, of what they thought, uh, how children should be trained. So he says, so the charter says in the fifth paragraph that this, in this institution, all boys will learn until bar mitzvah. Lest, you can't leave before the age of 13. 
However, after 13, those who do not show a special promise in their studies will be given to trade schools or will be given over as apprentices to artisans so that they can be so they can be productive citizens and making their own and make their own living on top of that they will also have daily classes in ethics in the laws regarding uh, business and uh, money and other uh, such uh, classes as the uh, Hanhola, as the leadership of the school will feel proper. Those who do show promise in their studies will be retained to go to the Yeshiva Gedola. That's a, a very uh, practical, uh, the only problem, in theory it's great, I mean, to decide on every individual child is uh, perhaps something else. Because, uh, you, uh, you know, some children are very late bloomers and some burn themselves out very early. But, in any event, that was the policy. And Reb Shmuel Salant himself was the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitz Chaim for ten years, from 1850 to 1860. We see in Reb Shmuel Salant a certain pattern. The pattern was that he gets the thing started and then he gives it away. He gives it to other people to run. Uh, he doesn't see himself as a proprietor of institutions. Uh, in 1860, therefore, he brought from Chaslevitz in Lithuania a great rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Nehemiah Kahanov, to become the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitz Chaim. And he was the Rosh Yeshiva till 1882. In our time, the Rosh Yeshiva of Eitz Chaim was Rabbi Zalman Meltzer the father-in-law of Rabbi Cutler. But it is the oldest and still one of the largest yeshivas in Jerusalem, Yeshiva Chaim. It's now 140 years old, and it's a, uh, it's a yeshiva that was founded by Rabbi Shmuel Salante. J.M. in the A.M. Rabbi Shmuel Salant is the focus of Builders of the Holy Land, the series brought by Beryl Wine. We'll try to get to as much of this uh, um, a part of the uh, Builders of the Holy Land as possible um, before we start getting into the other parts of this morning's program. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN. And RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, again, uh, we'll, we'll continue with more coming up here at JM and the AM. News from Israel scheduled in the next couple of minutes. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to present that to you coming up at JM and the AM. Uh, Wednesday morning on this 30th of July, the 3rd of Menachem Av. Mostly sunny with a high temperature of 81. Clear skies tonight, low 65. And afternoon thunderstorms for tomorrow with a high temperature of 80. A special good morning and a special I hope the weather's good <laughs> to our friends who are bike for chaying today. A lot of, uh, a lot of great people are taking to the bicycles, the cycles, the, uh, I don't even know if you can call it a bicycle, right? Isn't there a fancy name for it when you're at that level of uh, cycling? Uh, they are heading up to Camp Simcha. They'll be there tomorrow at the world's greatest finish line. And the bike for chayers, according to what we just saw on their website, are a, are a drop under $4 million, a drop. And I'm sure there are plenty of people in our audience who have contributed. See, I should to everybody. It's pretty amazing. 
I think they're under $2,500 away from $4 million, which is just incredible. Uh, so you can go search Bike for Chai, and you can participate that way. And, of course, if you're cycling today, hope you're listening to JM and the AM on the way. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners, sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. News from Israel next. We'll continue with Rabbi Wine. Rabbi Kenny Brander is supposed to join us, Dean of the Center for the Jewish Future. Yeshiva University has just ended a program in Israel that was certainly affected by the situation. We'll explain that coming up. He also has a personal story that will be intriguing to many during this Gaza war. 8 o'clock, my father's hesped of the Lubavitcher Rebbe from 20 years ago today on the Shloshim of the Rebbe back in 1994. That's coming up a little later on. I'll explain the background behind all of that coming up here at JMNAM. Next week from Israel, including a visit to Stay Rote on Friday, which is pretty amazing. More details on that coming up as well. Galit Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next at JMNAM. <laughs> שלום, זרק המנהלת התכנסו בעוד זמן קצר בקריה בתל אביב לדון בהצעה שעל הפרק ההצעה המצרית להפסקת האש בהמשך נדע מה ההחלטה הישראלית אליל תודה, במקביל נמשכים חילופי האש ברצועה והירי לעבר ישראל כתבנו רמי שנים עושר כי בשעה האחרונה התפוצצו רקטות בשטחי המועצה הזורית מרחבים אחת גרמה נזק לחממות ואחרות התפוצצו בשטחים פתוחים מנכלית האוצר יעל אנדורן מעריכה שניתן יהיה לחסות את עלויות המבצע מהרזרבה בתקציב. נכון לעכשיו אנחנו מעריכים שהתקציב המדינה לשנת 2014 יכול להעריך את העלויות הביטחוניות שיהיו כתוצאה מהמבצע הנוכחי. בתום המבצע כמובן נעשה הערכת מצב ונבחן ענפים אחרים במשק והשפעה עליהם ונבדוק איזה מהלכים יש לבצע על מנת לסייע לענפים האלה להתאושש במהירות האפשרית. ראש הממשלה לשעבר אהוד אולמרט ירער לעליון על הרשעתו בפרשת הולילנד ועל גזר דינו שש שנות מאסר, כתבנו רום ליאור. בערעור טוען אולמרט כי בקביעת בית המשפט המחוזי בתל אביב יש פגם משמעותי עקב העובדה שלא יכל לחקור את עד המדינה שמואל דכנר בחקירה נגדית והוסיף כי ההסתמכות על דכנר בהרשעה היא מוטעית מפני שזה שיקר בעדותו בפני בית המשפט כלשונם. בנוסף טוען ראש הממשלה לשעבר כי הראיות הנסיבתיות שעמדו במשפט אינן מספיקות חייבה את הרשעתו. שר האוצר לפיד תוקף את המפלגות החרדיות והעבודה שטרפדו את הדיונים בחוק מע"מ אפס על דירה ראשונה. יונה לייבזון שמע אותו. מפלגת העבודה והחרדים חברו אתמול לתרגיל כדי לגרום לדחייה של ההצבעה על חוק מע"מ אפס למושב הבא של הכנסת. זה לא יעזור להם. גם את השוויון בנטל לקח לנו שנה להעביר, אבל העברנו אותו ולא עזרו כל התרגילים. כתב בנוי דו בן בג'י מוסר שחבר הכנסת משה גפני מיהדות התורה מתח ביקורת על חברי יש עתיד, שהחרימו היום את דיוני המליאה. סייה גדולה, שהיא באה ואומרת, היא נעלבה מזה שלא הצליחו להעביר את החוק, היא לא באה לדיוני המליאה. אין להם צל צילו של מושג ירוק. מה זה הדמוקרטיה? הם כמו פנאטים כאלה, לימדו אותם שאיש אחד ממנה את חברי הכנסת, איש אחד ממנה את השרים, ואם הוא אומר להם לא לבוא, הם לא באים. 
התחזית מחר נאה עם ירידה קלה בטמפרטורות. ולסיום, מיוחד לגלי צה"ל וגלגלצ, עידן רייכל מבצע עם יוד, חייל שנפצע בעזה את אם תלך. זה קרה בשידור החי של תוכניתנו עושים צהריים מבית החולים סורוקה בבאר שבע. קיבלתי לחטא, מדובר בשידור חי. בבקשה. ומיד אחרי החדשות בגלי צה"ל, השעה השלישית של השידור המיוחד עם יעל דן, גוני כהן, עידן רייכל ומשפחות הפצועים בגלגלצ, קולות החיילים עם שירים שבחרו החיילים המאושפזים בבתי החולים. אלה החדשות שעורך הדר שיפר. J.M. and the A.M., that's the news from Israel, top of the hour. Um, we'll conclude this part of Rabbi Wine's uh, series on uh, Builders of the Holy Land. Rabbi Shmuel Salantis is focused, and then more coming up here at J.M. and the A.M. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. In 1858, he founded the Bikr Cholim Hospital. So in Hebrew it was called Tatu Bach. Tat stood for Talmud Torah. Ubach stood for Biker Cholim. So the charities in Jerusalem was the Yeshiva Seitz Chaim. Tat, so that's the Yeshiva Gedola. Tat, that's the Yeshiva Ktana, the elementary school. And the Bach was the Biker Cholim. All three were founded by Shmuel Salant and all three were supported by him. You'll see even today, by the way, the institutions today are Uh, headed by great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren of his, all of whom are in Jerusalem, the Tikachinsky family and others, Brodsky. There's a, they're a very uh, prolific family uh, from Shmuel Salant who are uh, still in positions of leadership in Yerushalayim till today. But you'll see that when they send out, they usually send out a luach, a calendar or something, they always have his picture. First thing that you see is a letter from him regarding the importance of the institution and his picture uh, because of the fact that uh, it's a source of immense pride to them that it was founded by the great Reb Shmuel Salant. The Bikr Cholim Hospital, when it was founded, so people said, what do you need a hospital for? But it proved its worth that in 1866 there was a terrible cholera outbreak in Jerusalem. in which uh, hundreds of people died, and this hospital was like the only hospital that existed. And the hospital tended to uh, Jew and Arab alike, and it was uh, primitive medicine. The hospital for the first 30 years did not have a registered doctor. But it was some sort of place for the sick. And he was uh, he was the founder of it. He obtained for Sir Mo, for, from Sir Moses Montefiore drugs, uh, hospital equipment, money. He used his friendship with Montefiore for the development and upbuilding of Jerusalem and for these projects. And in fact, when Montefiore visited Jerusalem for the last time in 1863, Montefiore brought out, you don't go to Jerusalem with an empty suitcase. You all know that, right? People always give you things. 
So he brought along drugs for the hospital from England, bandages, drugs, things which in the Levant and the Ottoman Empire were uh, scarce, if not non-existent. So he brought with him, with his retinue, the entire, uh, he also brought uh, uh, necessary equipment for uh, the beginning of surgery. Now, the hospital, Bikaholim Hospital, has gone through many, many stages, and it's still going through stages. And they've tried to combine it with other hospitals. It is a bit anachronistic because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's building, and it's, uh, the building, this is the new building it's in now, in Rehov Yafa. But uh, it's, uh, it's building and its procedures and the governing board, etc., are a throwback to the 19th century. The Israeli government has tried a number of times to either close it or to uh, force it to unite, uh, to merge with Shari Tzedek or other hospitals, but they've been uniformly unsuccessful in getting them to do it. Today, it is one of the most popular hospitals in Jerusalem as far as childbirth is concerned, as far as maternity is concerned. That's like its main business. Uh, it's uh, surgical uh, and other uh, departments are uh, are not that strong. But uh, the hospital still exists. It's an enormously old hospital. You're talking about a hospital that's uh, uh, 131 years old. And that was, again, founded by Rabbi Shmuel Salant. In 1858, a great man came to Jerusalem, Rabbi Meir Auerbach, and he came from the city of Kalish in Poland, in the name Kalish or Kalish, that's from, from that city. And he was a rare person of mayor because of the fact he was a millionaire. He was a rabbi, he was a millionaire, and he came to Jerusalem with a large fortune. And he was a great Talmud Chochem. He wrote a number of brilliance for him, the Imre Bina. He's very, very famous. And when he came, so... Uh, Shmuel Salant insisted that the title of Rabbi of Jerusalem go to him. Not only did he not receive a salary from Jerusalem, but they made out of his large fortune a small fortune. He was the main uh, contributor and supporter for much of the progress in the Ashkenazic Jewish community during his time. He lived in Jerusalem for 30 years. And he also had a uh, great influence on the development of the Jewish community. He was a uh, very, very strong person. And he was a major uh, factor in the development of Ashkenazic Jewish Jerusalem. In 1856, Montefiore came to visit uh, Jerusalem. And when he came to visit so Reb Shmuel Salant said to him, you know, we should buy land here. We should expand outside the walls, because in the walls there was almost no room to expand. Now, here was an interesting story. In New Orleans in that year, uh, the famous uh, Judah Turo, you know, the famous Sephardic Jew, Judah Turo, died. And he left $300,000 for Jewish charities, which in 1856 was an enormous sum of money. One of the things that he specified in his will was that $50,000 should go 
for the Jews who live in the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. But he did not say how it should be used. Montefiore was a trustee of the will. So Montefiore had $50,000 burning a hole in his pocket. So if Shmuel Salon said that we should uh, buy something. So he bought, right near Hartzion, outside the walls, he bought an area of 18,000 dunam, and that was called Mishkanot Shananim. It's the oldest neighborhood in Jerusalem outside the walls. It started in 1853. He built there the famous windmill that's still there today. That's Montefiore's windmill because he had hoped that the windmill would provide employment as a milling station, that people would be able to uh, take grain and mill it. But uh, it never worked. And he built that whole row of houses and apartments. The only thing is that the Arabs then are like the Arabs now, right? You couldn't go out at night. So people were reluctant to live there because of the fact that you were not protected by the walls and you lived, had to live out in the open. Nevertheless, he insisted that uh, Shmuel Salant insisted that the deal go through and that it be bought and built. The famous legend about uh, Montefiore, that Montefiore came to the Arab and he said, I'm willing to pay you whatever it is, $10,000, some enormous amount of money. So the Arab says, no, I took an oath. I'll never sell it out of my family. We're never allowed to sell it out of my family. I give it to you, Sir Moses Montefiore, but I wouldn't sell it to you. Montefiore was astute enough to know it's like Avraham Avinu and Ephraim. He was astute enough to know that he's not giving them anything. Montefiore came back. He was persistent. He came back twice, three times, four times, until finally the Arab said, "I wouldn't sell it." He said, "But if you'll, you know, if you'll give me ten thousand dollars for a cause, for a fund, right, then I give it to you." And that's how the deal was struck. It's interesting that the Arab. Uh, wanted that the, uh, they had to go to the Sultan to sign the deal on Shabbos. And the Rabbonin Paskin, Reb Shmuel Salan, together with Reb Meir Oyerbach Paskin, according to the Halacha, as it appears in the Gemara, that for Yishev Eretz Israel, so they couldn't sign, but for Yishev Eretz Israel, they could make the deal on Shabbos. They went to the, to the court, to the Muslim court on Shabbos, to have the deal certified in order to be able to buy the land outside Yerushalayim and begin the neighborhood. The next neighborhood, you know, is Yamin Moshe, which is named after Moshe Montefiore. Those are the two neighborhoods that he bought, and that Reb Shmuel Salant is the one that encouraged him, pushed him to buy it, and was determined that the uh, development of the Jewish community should be pushed in that fashion. Uh, the uh, Moshe Montefiore had many times wanted to give a gift to Reb Shmuel Salant. Reb Shmuel Salant never accepted anything from anybody all of his life. On one of his visits to Israel, so Reb Shmuel Salant was then outside the country. So Montefiore was able to leave the gift for him. And he left a beautiful, fancy Kiddush cup inscribed a gift from Sir Moses Montefiore to Reb Shmuel Salant. I saw the cup. 
his descendants have the cup. But that was the only way that he could leave something for him. But this is a remarkable partnership because that's the development of Montefiore really is the forerunner of what Rothschild would do 25 years later. And that's how uh, the development of uh, the land of Israel, the Jewish development of the land of Israel began. It began through uh, the philanthropy of these uh, individuals. When uh, Mayor Oyerbach died, so... Reb Shmuel Salant insisted that they bring another Rav again from Europe, even though, again, it was uh, he was basically the rabbi and he was the leader of the community, uh, but he insisted that they bring another rabbi from Europe again, which, as we'll see next time, they did. In 1849, there was an organization that collected money for all the Jews in Jerusalem. In 1849, the organization split into many different organizations because they said if you have a lot of organizations, you can raise more money, which is an old trick in fundraising. That if you have, if you have many organizations, usually you make more money than if you, uh, than if you have one united, even though it sounds great to have one united. But uh, in terms of fundraising, Shmuel Salant opposed that. Because he said even though that perhaps the fundraising would benefit, it would prove quite divisive in the Jewish community. It also provides too many jobs of power for too many people. It also provides too much competition. It also opens the door to too many problems. But as, uh, as also occurs often, they did not listen to him. And in not listening to him in 1849, this uh, split in the community occurred. He fought it all of his life. And to show you how uh, how strong he was, 17 years later, he finally united them again. In 1866, he created what was called a Vad HaKloli, a general council for all the Ashkenazic Jews in Jerusalem. And he forced them again back in line that they should have one central organization that would govern Sidim and Misnagdim and all of the different groups together, and that would make fair allocations and would be able to uh, sustain the Jewish community in Jerusalem. This is the first half of the story about Reb Shmuel Salat. Next week, God willing, we'll talk about the second half and his relationship with the new Jewish community of Jerusalem, which was which would begin in the 1870s. J.M. and the A.M. on a Wednesday, Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of Rabbi Shmuel Salon, Builders of the Holy Land series uh, from his lecture series, uh, 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN for information, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. J.M. and the A.M. at 20 minutes after 7 o'clock in the morning, Wednesday, nine days format. Tuesday is Tisha B'Av, we'll be here. We'll recite Kinnis live on the air. We hope everybody who uh, is not able to make it to synagogue or those who have to curtail their visit to the synagogue will join us for Kinnis on a Tuesday Tishabov morning. Yossi Baumel from Stay Road, who will be visiting in Stay Road next Friday, Bezrat Hashem, will be with us Monday here at JM in the AM. In fact, the rumor is that he'll be in Teaneck for Shabbos. I think it was, was it Teaneck for Shabbos or for Thursday night? Now, I don't remember anybody out there who has that information. You could forward it to us.
just email it in. I know that he's got a couple of speaking engagements on behalf of Stay Road. At least one, I believe, tomorrow night, and I think over Shabbos he'll be in one of our communities as well. It may have been Teaneck, I don't remember. Um, so you can let us know, and we'll let everybody else know, that's for sure. Rabbi Kenneth Brander will join us minutes from now. The uh, Counterpoint program from Yeshiva University has ended in Israel, had a very interesting summer, to say the least. The participants, because of the situation, we'll talk to him coming up. Bike for Chai has begun. The bikers, I am told, left 7 o'clock this morning. They are biking for Chai, and anybody who has contributed, you should know that you've contributed to a total of $4 million. They officially on their website are a tad under $4 million, which is pretty amazing. Uh, Bike for Chai will reach Camp Simcha tomorrow. The world's greatest finish line will be celebrated by the uh, kids and staff up at Camp Simcha tomorrow. It's always a an unbelievable, even by video, it's an unbelievable event. I can only imagine what happens live and in person. want to remind everybody that um, I had the chance to see, and many people had the chance to see the premiere of the... Um, of the uh, documentary entitled In One Split Second. This was this past Monday night in New York City. Tonight it's being shown up in Monticello at the Monticello High School and Sunday night in Far Rockaway at the White Shul beginning at 7.30. I was told that there's a showing for women tonight at the Beis Yaakov of Borough Park, 1369 46th Street in Borough Park, Brooklyn. That starts at 7.30. That is tonight, so you may want to check it out at an opportunity in this area to see it tonight uh, for the ladies. I got an email uh, from somebody who attached one of the Arut Sheva articles about the heavy pressure that President Obama is placing now on Israel for a ceasefire, and they are recommending that the uh, that all of our listeners, or those who are inclined to do so, call the White House during business hours today and uh, and demand that Israel must be allowed to complete the job they started not just for their sake, but for the sake of the entire free world. If you'd like to contact the White House, their number is open at 9 a.m. this morning at 202-456-1111, 202-456-1111. You can also go to the White House website, just search it on Google and send them the same message via the web. I also got a uh, communique this morning from a listener named Sam who says that the House has passed $235 million in additional funding for Israel's Iron Dome defense system. And now it's up to the Senate, but Senator Reid has linked additional Iron Dome funding with a controversial bill dealing with the immigration issue now at America's southern border. This might interfere with desperately needed funding for Iron Dome. To reach the switchboard of the United States Congress and speak to the office of your senator, and or Senator Reid, and telling them how important this uh, funding is for Israel's survival, um, you can call 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. And that gets you to the uh, congressional switchboard, and obviously you'd want to speak uh, at some point to your your own uh, member of Congress and member of the United States, members of, of the United States Senate, and um, if you wish, you could speak to anybody. You could ask for anybody and speak with any of the members of the House or Senate and their offices about this issue. JM and the AM with 64 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high temperature of 81. Checking out the latest uh, blog posts from Israel through the Jerusalem Post. We told you that at 1:30.
which was 6.30 a.m. our time. Rocket sirens were sounded in Ashdod. At 2.05 p.m., which was just 20 minutes ago, rocket sirens blared in Ashkelon and the frontier towns near Gaza. And this is uh, something that's become very frequent now over the last 48 hours, as we know, as we continue to pray for the safety of our IDF troops and for the peace and security of our brothers and sisters in Israel. Um, so anybody out there who, uh, anybody out there in our uh, audience who is uh, planning uh, Tehillim and Tefillah rallies uh, at this time, please let us know about them so we can announce them. It will be much appreciated. Also, we mentioned earlier, and we tweeted this out, and we posted it on Facebook, that there are certain Hasidic groups that have already announced that they will not be closing their yeshivot uh, during Ben Hazmanim. Ben Hazmanim is the vacation time that usually happens around this time of year. And um, representatives of Ger, Bells, Vizhnitz, and Sons Hasidic groups have all stated that they're expected to cancel. I think they're saying expected because they're going to see if the war is still going on, obviously, next week. They're expected to cancel the usual summer vacation activities for students and maintain a substantial study program in their yeshivas. And apparently, uh, and, and we know sincerely that um, this is an important part of the strategy of the Jewish people, the constant and the increase in Torah study. Um, apparently, according to the article I read, the Lithuanian yeshivot are waiting for a, uh, for a psak, for a decision about how they're going to be handling this period of time that's scheduled to start on Tisha B'Av. Um, so they are going to consider it and wait for a decision, and then, uh, and then I assume uh, everyone will be made aware of what their decision was. Um, but this is a, I believe, a tremendous boost, especially in Israeli society, uh, where people see that the yeshivot, at least in this case, the Hasidic yeshivot, are remaining open during the Benazmanim period. Uh, we got a message from uh, our friends at Jab Katif, founded by Rabbi Yosef Tzvi Rimon. Uh, now more than ever, we need you. 92% of the families from Gush Katif are living in the southern southern part of Israel. They lost their livelihood. They watched as their homes and communities were raised. Now they're under rocket fire and their lives are paralyzed. They are asking synagogues throughout the world to dedicate Shabbat Chazon, this coming Shabbat, to the Gush Katif families living in the south. Parsha Dvarim, Shabbat Chazon. They're asking that everybody please utilize the opportunity to raise money and support those who are in need during this uh, difficult time. Phone number 02, this is in Jerusalem, 02-580-0070. Or you can go online, jobkatif.org, jobkatif, K-A-T-I-F dot org for information. Job Katif, job K-A-T-I-F dot org for information and your help, of course, is greatly appreciated. That is an understatement. The Tishabov program has been announced for Brooklyn, New York, starting on Monday. Uh, Monday night, uh, Mariv, Eicha, and Kinnis takes place at 1200 Ocean Parkway at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn. And then Rabbi Chaim Walkin 
and Rabbi Tzvi Mordechai Feldheim are going to be addressing the gathering. After Shacharis on Tuesday, Kinnis will be led by Rav David Schwartz. Then at 1 o'clock, Rabbi Noach Orlowick, the first Mincha, Rabbi Yosef Weiner, Rabbi Yaakov Bleich, Rabbi Moshe Tovio Leif, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi Aaron Levitansky, Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Klein, a second Mincha, Rabbi Fischl Schachter, and then Marav and Refreshments at 9.05. It's all happening at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn, the old-day Tisha B'Av program. Helps many people stay focused on the day of Tisha B'Av. And um, kudos to everybody who puts this together. Phone number for information, 718-998-5822-718-998-5822-718-998-5822. And... Um, let's see here. Just trying to find the official announcement for this coming Tuesday Tishabov. It is a tradition. It is a tradition that the, uh, Tishabov prayer service, Mincha, take place at the United Nations right across the street at the Isaiah Wall. And there's a lot to pray for together this Tishabov, that's for sure. So on Tuesday at 2 p.m., 1st Avenue and 43rd Street, please join her by Avi Weiss, Glenn Richter, Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, and be there. Uh, we always want there to be a crowd. And we hope you'll be able to attend. Bring your talis and tefillin and sidurim. And um, please be there this Tuesday at 2 p.m. for the Tishabav Mincha service in a very dramatic setting, the Isaiah Peace Wall opposite the U.N. First Avenue and 43rd Street in New York City. It is always inspiring. I hope everybody out there has an opportunity to participate and to come by in New York City. For those for those who work on Tuesday Tishabav. I know it's not always believable, but you have to trust me. They do try to move the service as quickly as possible so you can get back to work. I know that's a great concern for people uh, who are working. Um, usually there's only uh, a break between Torah reading and Shmona Esri for a short uh, presentation, a short speech. Uh, but they do try to move along the program, and I hope you'll be able to attend. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Zechonishmas Rav Zebin Rav Yosef Alevi. Here is, excuse me, here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning chizuk. Good morning. We say particularly at this time, Achenu Kobes Yisrael, our brothers, the whole house of Israel, Hanesunim Batsara Uvashivya, who have been handed over to distress and captivity. Whether they're on the sea or dry land, that Hashem shall have mercy on them, and shall take them out from distress to relief. In this tefillah, we ask Hashem to have rachmanus on Achenu Bnei Yisrael, our fellow Jews, no matter where they are, no matter what the situation is. The Sefer Hameir La'olam makes a very profound comment on this tefillah. When a Gezerah 
a decree against an individual is being considered in Shemayim, at that moment there are many things that are taken into the Cheshben. Perhaps many people will be affected, many people will be hurt, and they're not the ones that deserve to go through great distress and pain. There are two things for us to keep in mind. One, there is the mitzvah that you have to love your fellow Jew just like you love yourself. Our care and compassion for Achenu B'nai Yisrael has to be as strong or stronger than we care about ourselves. The second is that we are inextricably bound. We share a common destiny with all Jews all over the world. The security, the safety, and the peace of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael is the security, the safety, and the peace of the Jews in America and all over the world. So when we offer our heartfelt pleas to Hashem that the madness should stop, that the rockets cease, and that there is true peace, we realize that we are really praying for ourselves and our own destiny. It's interesting to note that in this tefillah, all of the other paragraphs start Yehiratzon, may it be the will of Hashem. However, this paragraph, in talking about Achenu Kobes Yisrael, does not begin with the words Yehiratzon. The reason is, is because when we pray on behalf of our brethren, we realize it is already the will of Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. May we all hear B'suros Tavos Yeshuos V'nechamos. J.M. in the A.M. I thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. Rabbi Goldwasser always seems to know what to say. It's been like that for over 30 years, and I thank him for that. We've been through some uh, some great challenges in the Jewish world, especially vis-a-vis Israel over that period of time. Uh, Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us live via telephone. Aside from being an amazing friend of this show and somebody I know for quite a long time, uh, he is the Vice President of University and Community Life up at Yeshiva University. He, as usual during the summer, has again supervised, whether on the spot or from afar, an amazing group of students in a counterpoint program in an area of Israel that when you hear where they were, <laughs> you'll understand the challenges that they had this summer. The program, in fact, ended last night, and we'll get to hear about that here this morning at JM in the AM. Rabbi Brander, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you uh, in person or telephonically. I, I appreciate that. It, it is always uh, a highlight of the summer when Yeshiva University students take off from the United States and head to Israel, including areas like Demona, which you've described to us in the past, and they always have an incredible effect on the community. But this summer, you'd have to admit, was a little bit more challenging, right? Yes. Um, this summer, uh, as we have for the past uh, nine years, we spent time in Kiryat Gat, Kiryat Malachi, and Arad and Demona. And normally, uh, we're welcomed uh, with wonderful uh, students, wonderful teens, around 300 of them, we're welcomed by uh, social workers and by mayors. This year, we happen to be welcomed by all of them, plus uh, missiles on a 
regular basis. Had so a it was a little bit more challenging. Had a feeling you were going to say that. And for those who don't know the geography, if they look up any of the areas you just said, they'll realize that every one of those communities is under rocket fire for the last few weeks. Correct. Uh, Demona and Arad have been under uh, serious w- rocket fire. Kiryat Gat, Kiryat Malachi became actually a little too dangerous, so we had to reorganize the programs um, to the point where one of the missiles landed um, around a kilometer away from where our students were staying. So the Army actually, and uh, what's called Pikud, Pikud Ha'oref, which is the like Homeland Security, right. uh, informed us that they were canceling all summer camps, but they actually made an interesting comment that they were canceling uh, the Yeshiva University camp first. And when we asked them why, they said, well, you only work with teens at risk, which means for the most part, either these teens only have one parent or no parents, and they definitely don't have cars. So they're walking an hour or so every single day to and from camp, and that's simply too dangerous uh, to allow uh, the teens to be exposed. Unbelievable. So, uh, uh, Kirat got Kirat Malachi got shortened, got abbreviated, but we actually ran camp for them actually yesterday in Jerusalem. Uh, so, uh, you know, before we talk about the, uh, to talk more about this, this challenge and how your students reacted, because obviously the students that they were dealing with, I'm sure have been under rocket fire before. Many of the YU students had not been under rocket fire before. But first, could you remind our audience how even in a short period of time, just these couple of weeks during the summer, how your uh, staff and volunteers and the students have an amazing effect on the youngsters in those communities? Sure. Um, over the past nine years, we've been running a program with the municipalities, with the social workers, with the departments of education of all of these particularly uh, neighborhoods or towns within the south. We've picked the south because those are the development towns uh, for some of your listeners that may not know what that means, it means they, they are towns that the government has acknowledged are towns in which there is an extreme challenge of poverty and an extreme challenge of getting young people out of a cycle of poverty so they can graduate at least high school. And we decided that would be the focus of Yeshiva University's work, of our students' work. And they have run uh, studies on how we're doing. Uh, because they contribute to this process. Right. We don't just come in there and pay for the whole thing. The, the towns, the cities, um, the municipalities all contribute. And every external evaluation, that means evaluations not done by the towns or by Yeshiva University, but hired external evaluators have shown that the students who go on our programs, the teens at risk from, this, from, this, from the uh, communities in the south, have grown in their self-esteem and have grown in their interest in graduating high school uh, because you see our students. The dress is, is slightly different, but, you know, they're Orthodox kids who dress in a modern fashion, our, our students. They realize that they know similar music, but they see that our students um, have aspirations. And they realize that they also can have aspirations. It's amazing how it, It's amazing how they can become role models in such a short period of time. Right. Well, with all the various social media, um, you know, modalities, it, it, you know, between WhatsApp and Facebook, the relationship does not end after a month. It right. continues. Good point. So much so, Nachum, that the municipalities have asked us during the winter break to come back 
and they have basically, I don't want to say suspended school because they haven't done that, but actually for the one week that the YU students are off during winter break, school changes and actually the YU students take over the schools in these various areas. So instead of working just with 300 uh, teens, we work with uh, six to 700 teens over that period of time because we basically take over the whole school for the entire week. How many, um, how many of your students were involved in this summer program collectively? Uh, uh, 30, 35 students. And uh, is there a waiting list every year? Does everybody want to go to the always There's always a waiting list, and there's more and more towns that would love uh, Yeshiva University to work with them. We've gotten letters from the mayor of Beichan and a whole bunch of other cities of, um, you know, which are actually a little safer than the ones we've been going to. Um, but quite honestly, we, we have to do this in a fiscally responsible way. Um, so we limit it based on the wonderful contributions that we receive uh, to run such programs. Yeah, you've mentioned on the air that as long as the funding is available, you'll expand the program to whatever degree you can. So, 100%. Yeah, simple if anyone that. wants to support a city, they can just send me an email. 100%. Um, and we would be more than willing to add because we have more and more students. Nachum, I have to tell you that the students, their biggest concern while having to uh, go into shelters, I would say around twice a day, was that we would pull them out of their cities uh, that they were doing so much heroic work in. And obviously, uh, in consultation with the Army, in consultation with Homeland Security here, uh, we were able to create a structure that was safe for them and that they were value-added uh, in the communities that they were playing such important roles in. Very nice. Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us, Vice President of University and Community Life up at Yeshiva University. Kudos to the students, 30-plus who have now completed yet another a month-long program, a summer program in Israel to help communities and help children, especially those who might be from very difficult family situations. Seems they do a great job every single summer. So how did the students do? I mean, as, as I alluded to earlier, a lot of them had never been. I'm talking about your students now. A lot of them never been under rocket fire and constantly running to shelters. Uh, how would you evaluate their performance in that way? Well, as you said, Nachum, there, there's very little rocket fire, thank God, in Teaneck or in the five towns. Right. There's other types of uh, challenges, but not those. <laughs> Correct. Um, and, uh, but our students were just unbelievable. They were just, you know, listen, we made sure that uh, they were always, you know, safety was our primary concern. Of course. So, for example, there were no programs. We normally run some programs out in, like, fields, or we normally have a lot of trips. Right. All those had to change. Uh, every program was run, even the ones that were run in parks, were run 100 feet or so from bomb shelters that could uh, that could hold at least 150 people. Right. And Yeshiva University in Israel, because it has a program throughout the year for around 2,000 students that come for a year of study here, um, we have a full-time security person. Um, that person uh, was involved with Stephanie Strauss, who runs Yeshiva University Israel, um, and making sure that all of our programs, whether it was the the summer camps or whether it was our students on uh, digs or the students working on nanotechnology here in Israel for the summer, that they were all safe and that we had uh, protocols. So we would receive from the Army on a regular basis, that means a few times a day, exactly how we should do things, and we we made changes all the time. So normally Friday night they would eat at people's ha- homes in Demona and in Arad, this year we didn't let that happen. For fear on the way back from uh, a person's home, there would be an air raid siren, uh, and they wouldn't know exactly where to go 
because you don't have in Yerushalayim when the sirens uh, sound, you have a minute and a half. In in Demona and Arad, you have thirty seconds. Right. So we didn't want them to have to look for shelters while they're walking home. So yeah. we made changes as we went along, and obviously we, we were creative in the changes that we made. Um, and thank God, again, it seems that this was a wonderful program for the hundreds of, of teens we interacted with. And I have to tell you, as somebody who spent a lot of quality time with these our young YU students, this was, again, a uh, an example where the most important journey that they took was not to Israel, but really the journey of uh, their own self-discovery. Keep in mind, Nachum, that these students were here uh, during the loss of the three uh, of the three young teens. Um, they attended uh, at least one of the funerals. They had to deal with the fact um, of the you know of the murder of an Arab boy. They had to deal with the fact of uh, of the challenge of of seeing a war happen in front of their you know in front of their in front of their faces. Uh, literally, it's very close to the border, these, t- these towns. Um, but we, again, were able to create a safe and secure environment, at least in two of the towns, that we felt comfortable running the program until its end. Yeah, nobody would expect otherwise. My point is more that uh, I think a lot of the parents, uh, and I got kids in Israel this summer, so I could attest to this somewhat, and I've spoken to some of the leaders of their programs. I, I think some of the parents here would be amazed at how well the American yeshiva students adjust this type of situation. There is resilience. Often, often many think we have to bubble wrap our American children. I think uh, I think many have discovered that there is resilience and the capability to uh, to stand up to the pressure and deal with it in a uh, in an even keel manner. Let's put it that way. Um, and I'm sure in your programs. You know, the the heads of the programs have been in touch with you, the parents. Yeah, and of course. I made sure to communicate with the parents. Right. And I think, again, what you said is 100%. Right, 100%. We're learning a lot about our students, I think. We're learning a lot about our kids this summer, to say the least. Speaking of which, what's it like for the Brander family? Because uh, you, you th- there's, there's at least one person in your family who decided to make a full commitment to the Israeli Defense Forces. That must make this summer one where you're, uh, I, I would assume, sleeping with at least one eye open every night. Um, yes, uh, you know, our son, uh, Yosef, after uh, studying here for a year and a half, uh, decided that he felt that he, that it was his responsibility to serve to protect uh, the people of Israel. Um, and he told us um, that he wanted to join uh, the Army uh, as part of the Machal program, which is a, um 18-month program. He's in the Golani uh, unit, and he is actually a sharpshooter uh, in the unit. And Nachum, in our house, we had a law, we had a rule uh, that you could never bring in guns. So anyone who thinks that by not ha- by having a rule that you can't bring in guns <laughs> into your house, the kids are not going to want to play with them. Uh, well, I'm here to tell you that I have a 19-year-old who's now a sharpshooter. Um, and the other sharpshooter in the unit is also a kid who went to MTA with him, Rafi Wiesen, wow. uh, who's also on a leave of absence from Yeshiva University. Uh, to serve in Golani, and I, I worked it out that on his Golani base, there's at least a million of YU students who are on a leave of absence to serve in the Israeli army before beginning, uh, before beginning university. So, uh, listen, we're proud and we're nervous concurrently. Um, and, uh, I can only imagine. Two, yeah, sorry? I can only imagine. It's, see, when I was in Israel last week, 
it, it seemed like everybody I made contact with, casual people that I, you know, that I that I knew casually and and uh, and obviously friends, it seemed like everybody had somebody in their family, and in many cases, sons who were in Gaza or in the army or serving right. in the Golan, and it, it just it, it really hits home. I mean, it's uh, yeah. the, the commitment that they're making is remarkable, and you talk about that minion of students from Yeshiva University. Uh, I, I don't know if even you, with all your uh, sermonic abilities, <laughs> is able to verbalize where it comes from and 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 what type of commitment it is. I have trouble putting it into words. How this next generation of yeshiva students in our area are making such an amazing commitment to the Jewish people. It, it I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, we drove our son back to his base, and you know, you you're prepared. You know, to use your Hebrew to speak to the people who are the guards in front, and all of a sudden, as you get to the guard base, a kid, you know, who's opening the door for you in, you know, in full uniform, says, "Hi, Rabbi Brander, how oh. are you?" in oh, perfect English, God. and you realize he's one of the kids on a leave of absence. Oh my um, gosh. And um, oh my listen, Nachum, I think it's a tribute to the parents. I think it's a tribute to the schools that they've gone to. I think it's a tribute to our communities. I think it's a tribute to what Yeshiva University represents, and Baruch Hashem, I think we all in America have to be proud about the fact that a lot of us, a lot of our children have decided not to be armchair Zionists. At the same time, I don't think this is something that you encourage a person to do. Uh, it has to really come from their heart, and it has to come for all the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, because it, 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 is, it is a significant risk, uh, both in peacetime, I mean, the workouts that they make these kids go through, it's extreme. I know my son just finished like a 30-kilometer hike, uh, where the last five kilometers they have to carry stretchers and they're in uh, with people on them, and they're in full uniform, which means you know their guns and all the ammunition that goes with it and everything else like that. Um, he's my son is young. He's still in what's called imum uh, mitkadem. He's in advanced training uh, as a sharpshooter. So uh, thank God he hasn't seen. Um, he hasn't been in Gaza, but, you know, he's been in Hebron for uh, a Shabbos, um, patrolling in Hebron, which is not a walk in the park. Right. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's a special type of person who's willing to do that, and, and we're really proud of our son. And uh, I say that to him every time I speak to him, how proud I am. Um, and I keep the concern part uh, for conversations with someone like yourself. <laughs> yes. Very smart strategy on your part. All right, Kenneth Brander is Vice President of University and Community Life with first-hand uh, accounts of what it's like to be a parent of somebody in the Israeli Defense Forces. And, of course, a big congratulations to those Yeshiva University students who have completed yet another successful summer in Israel with the Counterpoint Program and uh, serving communities in different areas of Israel, especially in the South. Uh, they did great, as you would suspect, and they've made a lot of difference in the lives of young kids, many of them uh, uh, kids from broken homes and from di- very difficult family situations, and we commend them for that. Rabbi Brander, uh, yes, you know, a lot of programs you know. program could, uh, uh, or, or any program could have strongly considered not sending students over or bringing them back to the United States at a time like this. I think your uh, institution handled this exactly the way it should be handled. So thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Nahum. Good speaking to you. Rabbi Kenneth Brander, JM in the AM, eight minutes before 8 o'clock on this Wednesday with 64 degrees, mostly sunny weather and a high temperature of 81. Clear skies tonight with a low of 65 and tomorrow afternoon thunderstorms, a high temperature of 80.
eight minutes before eight o'clock. Coming up at eight a.m. this morning, Rabbi Zev Siegel, my dear father, uh, twenty years ago today on the third of Av, spoke at the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, I've had two relatively comprehensive interviews about the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe recently. The one with um, Rabbi Joseph Tolushkin. Uh, that happened uh, practically a few days ago. Uh, that happened back, uh, let's see here. <sighs> Rabbi Tolushkin was here on the 17th of July. In fact, you could access that through our archives. The 17th of July, he was here and uh, spoke about his brand new book entitled Rebbe. Back in uh, in June, I had the opportunity to speak with Haravadin Evan Yisrael Steinzaltz. Rav Steinzaltz wrote a book called My Rebbe, and that's on my website. If you go to NachumSiegel.com in the archives of the Buy the Book program. It's episode number 29. And you'll keep in mind, if you listen to that interview with Rav Steinzaltz about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, you'll keep in mind... That was the week of the kidnapping, literally when the kidnapping had been had taken place, but the murders had not yet been discovered. The murdered, I should say, were not yet discovered. And um, and Rav Steinzaltz, of course, had two students among the three kidnapped. So so that's the focus at the very beginning of the conversation. But then we get into to the conversation about uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It's episode twenty nine. Uh, check out the show archives at NachumSiegel.com, and you'll see it under uh, Buy the Book with Nachum Siegel. You'll see that there. Anyway, so those were two comprehensive conversations we had about the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I believe, and I've said this for 20 years, that one of the most amazing reviews and analyses of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's life and commitment and leadership was done by my father in this uh, Shloshim Hespid that was delivered 20 years ago today on the 3rd of Av. And we'll get to that just a couple of minutes from now right here at JM in the AM. Want to remind everybody that Bike for Chai has left. Uh, they took off this morning heading to Camp Simcha. Bike for Chai, according to the latest statistics, at five minutes before eight o'clock this morning, has raised three million nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand eight hundred and thirty-eight dollars. Which means whoever goes to their website right now and contributes one hundred and eighty bucks. You will put them over the $4 million mark. That's how unbelievable an effort this has been. So over these two days and these 180 miles, we salute the hundreds of riders that are getting set or have already embarked on the big journey up to Camp Simcha. They'll be there tomorrow afternoon at the world's greatest finish line. You can go to highlifeline.org and the Bike for High website, and you can contribute. And anybody who gives the 180 right now will put the Bike for High, High Lifeline, a uh, fundraising uh, effort over $4 million, which is just incredible. And kudos to the um, the 100K Club and the Double High Club and all the different clubs that have raised specific levels uh, for the uh, for the effort. It's just incredible. JM in the AM with the latest news from Israel, the um, latest uh, blog regarding Operation Protective Edge from the uh, Jerusalem Post tells us that in the Two o'clock hour in Israel, uh, between uh, 7 a.m. and now Eastern time. Rocket sirens have sounded in Ashdod, 
in Ashkelon and the Gaza frontier towns. The IDF at 2.30 this afternoon, which was less than a half hour ago, agreed to a four-hour humanitarian truce in Gaza, which begins starting at 3 o'clock. So literally in five minutes, this humanitarian truce, which is scheduled to last four hours, is set to begin. Meanwhile, at 2.40, which was just 15 minutes ago, rocket alert sirens sounded in the Eshkol Regional Council. So I guess the rockets from Gaza are continuing to fall. We'll see how long that lasts. Or I should say we'll see if the humanitarian ceasefire from the Gaza side lasts at all. I want to remind everybody that Tuesday is Tishabov. Tishabov morning. We're here at JM in the AM with Kinnis and more. Erev Tishabov on Monday. Yassi Baumol is scheduled to join us from Stay Road. He'll be in studio in advance of our trip to Stay Road and our, and our journey to Israel, which will include a presentation from Yom NCSY uh, on Thursday, Stay Road on Friday, Nefesh Benefesh the following week as we greet the plane in Ben Gurion Airport, the amazing charter flight with Nefesh Benefesh coming in in August with so many Chayalim and so many great families. That happens uh, uh, starting next week with our trip to Israel. On Tisha B'Av itself, I remind you that there is Mincha at 2 p.m. Tuesday at the Isaiah Wall, First Avenue at 43rd Street in New York City. First Avenue, 43rd Street in New York City, led by Avi Weiss. We try to get as large a crowd as possible every single year. We encourage you to come with your talis and tefillin and with your sidurim and get ready to daven together. Mincha on First Avenue um, with Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, Rabbi Avi Weiss, Glenn Richter, and everybody who comes together every single year. It's a very inspiring Mincha, to say the least. On Monday night, following Mariv, uh, the Tisha B'Av program in Brooklyn will feature Rabbi Chaim Walken, Rabbi Tzvi Mordechai Feldheim. Then Tuesday, Kinnis led by Rabbi David Schwartz, and then Harav Noach Orlowick, Rabbi Yosef Weiner, Rabbi Yaakov Bleich, Rabbi Moshe Tov Yalif, Rabbi Shmuel Dishon, Rabbi Aaron Levitansky, Rabbi Shmuel Yaakov Klein, Rabbi Fischl Schachter, Rabbi Fischl Schachter. They'll all be um, uh, presenting at 1200 Ocean Parkway, at the Yeshiva of Brooklyn Boys School. That's going to be happening Monday night and Tuesday for the Tisha B'Av program in Brooklyn, which always helps people really focus. That's a great program. helps people really focus on Tisha B'Av. And you'll get an opportunity to uh, uh, to participate this coming uh, Monday night and Tuesday in Brooklyn, New York. I, as I mentioned, I saw the um, the brand-new documentary about the destruction of Hungarian jury 70 years ago. It's called In One Split Second, done by Project Witness. They're going to be up in Monticello tonight at the Monticello High School starting at 7.30, showing the documentary. They'll be in Far Rockaway at the White Shul this Sunday. And they've added for ladies a, a presentation tonight at 7.30 at the base Yaakov of Borough Park. That's 1369 46th Street for women Base Yaakov Bar Park tonight beginning at 7.30. You may want to check it out. It is very, very worthwhile. Um, learned a tremendous amount, and it was very effective during the nine days. I can tell you that much. Um, so you may want to check that out this evening at the Base Yaakov of Borough Park. Wednesday morning, following the station identification, as I mentioned, uh, we've had a unique opportunity over the last couple of weeks to speak to Rabbi Joseph Telushkin and Rabbi uh, Adin about their books regarding the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, yet another unbelievable review and summary of the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe 
follows next. My father, 20 years ago on the 3rd of Av, at the Shloshim Observance in New Jersey, under the direction of Rabbi Moshe Herson, uh, the Shloshim Observance in New Jersey, uh, 20 years ago today, on the life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That follows next in America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world in the web, jmandtheam.org. This coming uh, Shabbos, we shall read in the Torah the summation of Moshe Rabbeinu. And among the things that Moshe Rabbeinu says is Echo Eso Levadi Tochachem Masachem Berifchem. Moshe Rabbeinu confesses that he doesn't know how he is able to carry the burden of leadership all by himself. And then he continues, so he decided there should be a leadership assisting him. And he says, the qualifications of leadership should be the following, and this is what the Torah tells us. Get yourselves men, wise men, understanding men, now you can't help but associate this statement of Moshe Rabbeinu where he designates the qualifications that there is a very strong relationship to Chabad. He says, Chachomim. Chochbo, Nevonim, Bino, Viduim, Das, and this is Chabad. The leadership of Klal Yisroel was given to the rabbi. And he fulfilled that mission to the maximum that can be fulfilled. He had Klal Yisrael, the entire people of Israel, was his concern. And a deep concern. Every corner in the world no matter how forsaken it was, and no matter how few Jews were there, he had them on his mind, in his heart and his soul. If there was a man qualified to reconstruct 
Jewish life. After the great Hurban, after the tragic Holocaust that befell our people, he was one man who did it. He reconstructed Jewish life in a very commendable way. And at the same time, he made Jews feel, without any exception, whoever they may have been, that they are a part of this reconstruction. He worried about every Jew wherever he was. And he had a certain devotion and dedication to Claudius Royal. I used to sit and I had the great privilege and I don't pretend that I understood the rabbi. I don't pretend that I can evaluate his scholarship or his spiritual greatness. But at the same time, in my own way, I was privileged to spend a great deal of time. It is no secret. Many of you know it. I used to come in 12 o'clock midnight and walk out not earlier than 3.30 in the morning and sometimes even later. And after a while when we were sitting, the bell used to ring. And I tried to get up because I knew there were people waiting there, people who were older than me. And as I was trying to get up, the Rebbe said in a tone almost of chastising me, he says, what are you, we are talking about the Klal. Wir reden wegen Klalsachen. And there was no disturbance when he was engaged in worrying about Claudius Roy. And I can go on and on about his great concerns. Nothing else to point out except the Jewish community in the former Soviet Union. Where three generations of Jews were alienated from everything that had to do with Judaism. And the only underground movement that succeeded in existence during the Bolshevik regime was the Lubavitch movement. And I know for a fact, I can stand here for hours and testify how this underground movement functioned with real devotion and dedication to everything that 
had to do with Jews and Judaism. And the Rebbe was the leader. No matter how many thousands of miles he was away, they were waiting with a great deal of thirst to hear something from 770. I was in Riga and Professor Branover was there. And you probably heard of Professor Branover. Beside being a devoted Hasid, a great scientist, universally recognized, a real Jewish leader, respect from all walks of life in the state of Israel, under every government, and Professor Branover told us the following. When Gorbachev came to power, the Reb, so people were very scared at the time. And the Rebbe sent a message to the Jewish community in Russia. And he told them, don't worry, things will get better. And naturally, they accepted the rabbi's word. And it calmed them down a little bit. But then Branover says when Gorbachev was in Israel recently, and he spent quite some time with him, so he asked Gorbachev, did you really, when you came to power, did you really think that you are going to change? from your predecessors? And Gorbachev said, no, not at all. In fact, my idea was to tighten a little stronger than my predecessors. Gorbachev didn't know where he's heading to, but the rabbi had enough insight to predict that things will improve. And I can testify it from another angle. You remember when the El Al plane was hijacked to Algiers, and the rumor was that Ariel Sharon was to be on this plane and he was told by the Rebbe that he should not travel with that plane. That was the rumor. When I met next with the Rebbe, so a little time passed, and I was curious, and I said to him, I hear rumors that you stopped Sharon from traveling down that El Al plane that was hijacked to Algeria. And the rabbi says the following. He made sure that he did not accept when I said he stopped the plane. And he said, you know, Sharon came, 
to say goodbye to me before he went to Israel. And I said to him, don't go. And Sharon didn't go. Says it's true. So naturally, obviously, I ask the next question. If you knew that the plane will be hijacked, why only save Sharon? You could have saved everyone else on that plane. And the rabbi gave me a look like I interpreted that it was not the wisest question that I have asked him. And he says to me the following, he said, he said it in Yiddish, do you think that I saw a plane being hijacked? He came to say goodbye. And all I did was say, don't go. For me, this was testimony of a certain insight that very rare human beings possess that insight. And this is what Branover meant. And this insight was used to reconstruct Jewish life in the world again. A great deal was said about the Rebbe's involvement in Eretz Yisrael. I knew many, many leaders in Jewish life, Zionists and non-Zionists, I had the privilege to be the youngest delegate, believe it or not, I was young once, the youngest delegate to the last Zionist Congress before the establishment of the Jewish state in Basel. And I sat on very important committees. And I saw leaders as well in the Torah world as well. But every one of them had a certain area of knowledge and insight. One may have been politically, diplomatically well-versed. Or one may have been involved in the economics. Or one may have been involved in science or in military affairs. But the rabbi had them all. And I can again say it from personal experience. The hours that I listened and discussed of every conceivable phase in the life of Eretz Yisrael. Not only education, not only the practice of Torah, but every conceivable phase of life in Eretz Yisrael. And I don't have to tell you his concern 
about the Shlemus of Eretz Yisrael. That was on his agenda. And in the last few years, he had something to worry about, as we see it now. He talked about outreach a great deal. There are many, many who are occupied with outreach, and God forbid for me to minimize it. I know what it is. I was a little involved with it. But the outreach of Lubavitch is second to none. The devotion and dedication and the misiras nefesh of the shlichim in all parts of the world. I was sitting a short three weeks ago, a Friday night, who is now acting as the chief rabbi of Latvia. And you know the days are very long now in that part of the world. And I heard the Friday night the devotion, the discipline. Nothing was difficult. And if there is Jewish life today in Riga, it is this chief rabbi who could have stayed in Kfar Chabad with his family. Instead, he's suffering in Riga. Or a young man, many of you may know, Glossman. A wife, a young wife with three infants. Doing youth work in every possible way. He's running now a summer camp. And I don't have to tell you, I, I had occasion to, a couple of years ago when I spoke for a group who was involved with Lubavitch, to tell you about someone who was very, very active here with Leib Raskin, who is in Casablanca for many, many years. And I saw him there in 68, also with infants. And when I went down from his apartment about one o'clock at night on a Friday night, and I said to him, excuse me for keeping you so late, so he says, what do you mean, excuse me? First of all, you are the first one who is here, who was there. There in Morocco in those days, there meant Israel. That's number one. So we heard what's doing. And secondly, he says, let my children know that there is a, there is a Jew in the world who speaks Yiddish to. I 
I can tell you many stories, but my time is limited. I can tell you what the Rebbe did in South Africa when I was there in the 70s, when the Jewish community was in a turmoil, and the Rebbe calmed them down, and the Shlichim there did their job. If there is a Seder in Himalaya, who does it? If a shochet was needed in Romania, who supplied it? If a mohel was needed in any part of the world, they were there, and they are still there. Yes, indeed, outreach to its maximum all part of the reconstruction of Jewish life. Tremendous amount of creativity. You remember when the rabbi started with the Mifzat Filim in the Six Day War? And Filim was not the most popular thing on the American scene. It was popular maybe on the day of Bar Mitzvah or a month before the Bar Mitzvah. But I have noticed what film did. When you come to the Kotel, to the Western Wall, a religious Jew has no problem. Either he dons Minche or Mayriv or Shachris, and if he comes in another part of the day, he says, feeling, he reads the Psalms. But what does a non-religious Jew do at the Kotel? What does he do? Another piece of paper on the wall. But feeling became synonymous with the Kotel of the non-committed Jew. He comes to the Kotel, he knows that this is the time to put on film and say Shema Yisrael. For all the other projects, the lighting of candles, another creativity. The rabbi was the first one on the American Jewish scene who did not permit Jews to run away from Jewish neighborhoods. But as it was said at the same time, the Rebbe never forgot the individual. And I want to share with you one of the experiences I had, which I must confess to you marked the rest of my life, particularly in the last few years, it was a great help to me. On one of my travels, and until this day I don't know how the rabbit discovered that I'm going somewhere, 
I was called, and the rabbi asked me to do something in that particular country. I came back, so I gave him a report, and again, with lack of wisdom, I say to him, I conversed in Yiddish, I said, the rabbi will listen, as is nicht gewenken gering gesagt. Saison gekommen sehr schwer. I said, the rabbi should know that this was not easy, an easy task for me. It was very difficult. And again, the rabbi looks at me and makes me aware how uh, unwise I am, to put it mildly. And he says to me, Arab Segal, Zint ven, Otir gemacht a contract mit Nuribene Shalaylom, Faragringen Leb. The rabbi says to me, Since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? And as I said, among many, many things, this has become a guide in my own life. Yes, indeed, my friends, there is a great deal to be said, and a great deal will be said. Because in all this, there is immortality. The Rebbe was not only the Manig Hador, he will be the Manig Hadoros. Many, many generations will benefit from what the Rebbe was for the people of Israel. And I know I'm as sure as I can be that right now as he stands before the Kisei HaKovot he is doing everything he possibly can to bring about our Geulo Shleim of Imehero Amen. J.M. in the A.M. Wednesday morning, uh, Rabbi Zev Siegel, my father, 20 years ago today. Hard to believe it was 20 years ago today. On the Shloshim Observance, a, a eulogy, a hesped. Remembrances of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And as I mentioned earlier, we've had an opportunity now on the 20th yard site to speak to Joseph Tolushkin, to speak to Rabbi Steinsaltz, both of whom have written books about the Rebbe. And uh, in many ways, I uh, I felt that this uh, presentation by my father, which we've played before, is a tremendous analysis of the incredible persona 
That was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Wednesday morning at 28 minutes after 8 o'clock on this July 30th, the third day of Menachem Av, following the news from Israel in the 2 o'clock hour, which means uh, between 7 and 8 o'clock this morning, our time, rocket sirens went off in Ashkelon and the Gaza frontier towns. The IDF at about 2.30 Israel time agreed to a four-hour humanitarian truce in Gaza beginning at 3 o'clock, scheduled to start a half hour ago. Rocket alert sirens went off in the Eshkol Regional Council at 2.40 p.m. And then at 3.08, after the uh, humanitarian truce was supposed to start, at 3.08, 20 minutes ago, rocket alert sirens sounded in Ashkelon and Ashdod. Minutes after the four-hour humanitarian truce that Israel agreed to was set to take effect, there were no immediate reports of injuries or damage in the attacks. That is the latest news from Israel, the blog on the Jerusalem Post that follows the war minute by minute. At 3.17, which was uh, 12 minutes ago, they posted that an earlier barrage of rockets fired at southern Israel, Iron Dome intercepted one above Ashkelon and one above Ashdod. A rocket landed in Stot Negev Regional Council. One person is being treated for shock. At 3.18, rocket alert sirens were sounded in the Eshkol Regional Council, and that is the latest from Israel at that moment as we continue to, at the moment as we continue to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land and for the amazing IDF who with the help of God will remain safe with the help of God will continue to accomplish the mission for uh, the state of Israel and the Jewish people. A couple of reminders. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the listener who gave me the information regarding uh, Yossi Baumel of Stay Road and his appearance in Teaneck, Yassi Baumel speaks tomorrow night, 8 p.m. at Congregation B'nai Yeshurun in Teaneck, New Jersey. That's 8 p.m. tomorrow night. He'll join us here Monday. 8 p.m. tomorrow night, you get to hear a first-hand report from Stay Road. Yassi Baumel will be at B'nai Yeshurun in Teaneck, New Jersey. Um, so that's coming up uh, tomorrow night. Um, a big, big good morning and Hatzlacha Rabbah to everybody who's bike for chaying or biking for chai this morning. It's a two-day two cycling adventure which ends tomorrow in Camp Simcha at the world's greatest finish line. And um, those of you who are following online as we've been doing for the last couple of hours, they have officially exceeded $4 million in fundraising. $4,515,000. So to everybody in the Jewish community, everybody around the world who's uh, participated, Kolakavod, over $4 million for Bike for Chai. They get up to Camp Simcha tomorrow. A reminder that Project Witness presents in one split second, commemorating 70 years since the destruction of Hungarian Jury, Tonight in Monticello at the Monticello High School, Sunday night at the White Shul in Far Rockaway. And tonight they've added a showing for women at the Beis Yaakov of Borough Park, 1369 46th Street. 1369 46th Street. That happens tonight in the Borough Park, Brooklyn. Our friends from Job Katif, who are taking care of people who, uh, 
were thrown out of Gaza nine years ago, and 92% of whom are still living in the South, have asked that everybody dedicate this Shabbat, Parsha Dvarim, Shabbat Chazon, to the Gush Katif families who live in the South. Information, jobkatif.org, jobkatif.org. Whatever you could do, believe me, will be greatly appreciated. Jobkatif.org. I mentioned earlier that um, uh, kudos to Ted Cruz, Republican from uh, from Texas, and Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from New York. And I had just mentioned to somebody how Senator Gillibrand had been so silent the last few days, last few weeks, I should say. Um, they are co-sponsoring and pushing a resolution condemning Hamas and its war against Israel. The resolution criticizes Hamas for using innocent civilians as human shields, tags Hamas and other terrorist groups with the blame for thousands of rocket attacks on Israel launched from Gaza, and demands the PLO chair Mahmoud Abbas condemn Hamas's tactics. So kudos to Ted Cruz and Kirsten Gillibrand, senators from Texas and New York, um, for that latest action. And as we said earlier, we continue to encourage people to contact your member of Congress, member of the House, United States Senators from your state, to keep the pressure going and to uh, demand that Washington stop the pressure on Israel, to thank the House for the additional funding for Iron Dome and to encourage the United States Senate to get that done ASAP. Everybody has a role to play. That's an important role that everybody can play at this time. Wednesday morning, the uh, bulk of our nine days programming is uh, lecture series by Beryl Wine. Today he discusses responsibility from his Jewish Values series. Information at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Tonight is the uh, concluding lecture in our uh, series on Jewish values. Tonight's lecture deals with concern for others, uh, which goes under the broad heading of chesed. And the Talmud tells us that Torah tchilosa chesed v'sofa chesed. The Torah begins with acts of chesed. God clothes Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. He provides them uh, with a wedding party. Pays the bills. Tachnos' column. And the end of the Torah is the burial of Moshe Rabbeinu. Vayikbor Oso Bagai. The Lord buried him in the valley. So since no one knew where Moshe was buried, and no one was uh, the Hebrew Kadisha, so to speak, so Kaviyochel the Ravona Shalom buried him. God was Metapil. God bothered with him. So the beginning of the Torah is Chesed, and the end, that's the bookends to the Torah. The bookends to the Torah are concerned for other people. And uh, that 
became uh, the hallmark of the Jewish people. Uh, that became our identifying trait. We know that, for instance, our father Avraham, uh, who uh, is our inspiration, uh, is the Amud Chesed. He is the pillar of goodness, concern for others. In a world that where everyone else is dome, Zdom is shali, shali, v'shalcho, shalcho. What's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, and we have nothing to do with each other. And if you're in trouble, that's not my problem. And uh, Zdom even set up uh, a rigorous societal fence to make sure that no stranger would ever come into town. And that... uh, no uh, no one need be concerned about anyone else. We see in the story of Zdom that when Lot, the relative of Ram, comes to Zdom and he allows the guests, the angels, to come into his house, uh, they, an entire uproar, the whole city turns out and is ready to lynch him. Because how dare you care about someone else? So, we would therefore say, that Avram Avinu, who is the uh, representative of everything that's opposite to Zdom, so when God tells him, you know, we're going to destroy Zdom, he would say, great. You know, nuke him. They deserve it. Get rid of them. Instead, Avram Avinu says... Is it possible that the judge of all mankind should not attempt to do justice here? Maybe there are 50 good people in Zdom. So we have to save Zdom because of the good people. 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. So because of that, Avram becomes the father of the Jewish people. Becomes the father of the Jewish people because he cares for others. And he cares for others so deeply uh, that even when perhaps it goes against his own self-interest, he is still willing to care for others. And... uh, the rabbis wanted to emphasize to us the greatness of that quality. So in the uh, Amidah, in the prayer that we say three times a day, uh, for Shacharit, Mincha, and Arvid, that we say, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchok, Elokei Yaakov. You're the Lord God of our father Avraham, our father Yitzchok, our father Yaakov. But the bracha ends, the rabbis say in brachot, Bechochosmi. The bracha ends only with you, Mogin Avraham. Why does it only end by Mogin Avraham? Because Avraham is the representative of that quality of chesed which allows us to pray to God. Because if we don't care about anybody else, then why should God care either about us? 
if we hold everybody to such strict standards of behavior and conformity and that everyone has to be just perfect otherwise and not only just perfect he has to be uh, you know my countryman he has to be the same exact as I am and otherwise I don't care about him so then uh, how can we approach God that he should care because God after all deals as we deal just as we measure so God measures us and therefore you'll find that the rabbis say that it pays to have very nice traits because then God will be nice to you as well but for instance if you're a perfectionist so then God is a perfectionist when he deals with you and if you hold everyone to certain standards and they don't meet them and therefore goodbye so then that's how God treats you so this idea b'chochosmin we seal the bracha with you Avraham because you are representative of the fact that somehow we do care for others and caring for others is an attitude and it's behavior there are some people who have the behavior and not the attitude there are some people that have the attitude and not the behavior and there are some people that have neither the attitude nor the behavior but the Torah wants us to have both so for instance the Torah says when we give charity to somebody and the Lord does not send us the perfect beggar I go through this every morning here, right? He doesn't send you an appealing person as somebody that you would love to give money to. And most of the time, you know, you know, the reeks of tobacco and who knows what drugs he's on and he's half drunk and you know, that's the guy that comes in, right? And he's the one that waves it in front of your face. So the Torah was well aware of that. So the Torah says, Your heart should know. You don't feel badly when you give him money. So you're giving him money. I mean, what could be, you know, who can hold you to a higher standard than that? You overcame everything within you to give this ne'er-do-well money. And the Torah says, oh, that's not enough. You shouldn't feel bad. You shouldn't feel that somehow, oh, you know, I've been exploited. I've, my money is wasted. I shouldn't have done it. Your heart shouldn't feel bad. The Torah demands that attitude from us. And therefore the Gemara says, When it comes to giving, so it says, Noson titain, give and give again. The Gemara says, even a hundred times. So, you know, so I just gave you yesterday. You're back again today. So, it's a question of attitude. I want everyone to understand that we're talking here about a standard that we try to reach. To say that every day we, we're there at that standard, there are very few people that are at that standard. There are very few people who are able to deal that way. Always. But that, at least, is what we aim for. We aim to be the children of Avraham. 
uh, we aim to have room somewhere in our universe even for Zdom. Uh, we aim to save our relative Lot, even though Lot has betrayed us, and there's no betrayal like a family betrayal. And yet, uh, Avram is determined that Lot should be saved. It's his relative. So this concept of caring for others, this value, overrides many other things. Uh, I'll give you a few examples if I may. The Medrash says the famous debate in heaven whether or not man should be created. So Emes, the value of truth, which you'll notice was not one of the values that I spoke about. The value of truth said, Al Yibore, let us not create man. Shukulo Sheker. It's all, he's all lies from beginning to end. It's all the newspaper. It's all television. It's all baloney. It's all the shatchan. Nothing true. Sheker. Who needs him? It's Olam Sheker. It's a world of lies. World of untruths. Spin doctors, public relations, all the good names that we have for lies. Chesed Omar, Chesed said, Yibore, we should create it. Because man has within itself the ability to do good things. And because it has the ability to do good things, because uh, millions of people will send uh, aid uh, to Indonesia uh, because of the tsunami, even though we don't know anybody in Indonesia, and even though Indonesia is not friendly with us, and even though uh, all the even those. But man basically can do chesed. If a person wants to do chesed, there's no limit to what he can do. Right? God gives us opportunities, unlimited opportunities to help people. And therefore, Yibore, God, you should create him. Now, so all the Mephorshim say, what about the lies? How does Chesed cover up for lies? I mean, Emmas is right. And Forsham say that chesed overcomes it. Because as we've discussed, all values, they are on a relative scale, so to speak. Which value has the priority? And therefore, the priority here is chesed. To help somebody. To do something good for somebody. And that overweighs the fact that we live in a world of falsehood in a world of sham. It's all overweight by that. Now the rabbis didn't define chesed, they called it gemilus chasodim. Gemilus chasodim means uh, to reach out to others. That's basically what it is. 
The word chesed itself means to break down barriers. So we find that the word chesed is also used in a negative sense in the Torah, uh, where the Torah discusses incest in a family, a man living with a very close relative of his, so the Torah says chesed, it's a chesed. Meaning that you've broken down a barrier. So gemilas chasodim is the breaking down of barriers because our essential barrier is self-interest, selfish, it's mine. Why should I care about you? And if I'm able to break down that barrier, so that's called gemilas chasodim. I'm able to be gomel chesed. I'll be able to somehow transfer chesed to someone else. Now the rabbis were very, very clear on the subject. So they said, for instance, Zdokov chesed shkulin keneget kol mitzvah If you put all the mitzvahs of the Torah on one side, and you put charity and gemilas chasonim on the other side, it'll weigh it down. Where do we know that from? From Avraham Avinu, who was before Matan Torah. The Gemara says that Gemilas Chasodim is greater than Tzedakah. Tzedakah always means giving money. Giving money is easy, relatively speaking. But Shad Tzedakah B'chaim Tzedakah is while you do with the living. But Gemilas Chasodim is B'chaim U'b'meisim. You can do gemilas chesed with those who are living and those who are no longer here. So the Gemara does not just mean that we, you know, we attend, God forbid, funerals or we're the burial party or we're the chevra kadisha that uh, that prepares the body, etc. Which all of which are great gemilas chasodim. But the Gemara means that uh, we, we look after his widow and his orphan. And we look after his ideas. We see to it that the person is not forgotten. All of that is under the idea of Gemilas Chesed. And because of the fact that we care about that. We care that it should not just disappear. Gemilas is Ba'aniyim. Tzedakah we give to the poor. Kemilas chasodim, la'aniyim u'la'ashirim. You give even to the wealthy. You call someone up. Smile at someone. Morris is very uh, uh, adamant on greeting people. You see somebody in the morning say, Boker Tov, good morning. Uh, here, if you do it, you know, people look at you like, what's your problem, right? But uh, the Gemara says on the great Rabbi Yochanan, uh, who was the head of the yeshiva in Tiberias and Tveria, and the main uh, figure in the Talmud Yerushalmi, uh, the Gemara wants to know that Rabbi Yochanan lived a very long life. It's, um, you make the reckoning in the Gomorrah, he probably lived a century. The Gomorrah wants to know how come? 
And the Gemara always asks these questions. And the Gemara never says because, you know, he did exercise, or he had a good diet, or he had a good doctor, all of which is necessary. But that's not the reason that the Gemara is looking for. How come you lived so long? And whenever the Gemara asks that question, the answer is always a moral answer. So the Gemara says, because Rabbi Yochanan said hello to everybody in the morning. The Gemara says that he even said hello to non-Jews. He said hello to everybody that he saw. So I try, I'm not Rabbi Yochanan, you know, but like I go in the morning to shul, so my uh, garbage men are always there, right? So I, you know, and they're not necessarily Jewish. The guy that's driving the truck is Jewish, but the other, the ones that are schlepping the, the garbage are not. You know, and I say to him, broke her toes, so like I did it for uh, two, three years running, and they finally, you know, uh, acknowledged that somebody said something to them. So that's afilu la'ashirim, right? Even the wealthiest person likes it if somebody says to him hello. Or uh, Shabbat Shalom, right? And there are people that just walk right by you like you don't exist. So then you're not gomel chesed. Tzdoka is b'mamono, the Gemara says. Tzdoka you do with money. You do it with money, but you do it with your body as well. You do it with your all. You have a chance to do it with everything. But the Gemara says, Avram Avinu Vayita Eishel Bever Sheva. So Eishel is the acrostic of Achila Shesia, and the Lamad is either Lina or Levaya. Avram Avinu, he gave people to eat. He gave people a place to sleep. Uh, he accompanied them when they left. There's a din that you're supposed to walk a guest to the door. Even though the guest knows the way out. So that's... Uh, That's Avram Avinu, right? So he does it with with his body, right? He shows honor to a person. So that's that's Vayita Eishel. Planted this. So Vayita Eishel is not just that he planted it in Beersheba. He planted it within us. And I, yeah... I once saw something, it's funny, but it's not funny. Uh, one of my rabbeim in the yeshiva, so another Rosh yeshiva came to visit him, and I happened to be in, the, uh, in their presence. So when the Rosh yeshiva got up, the guest got up to leave, so he walked them down to the street, and then the other man walked them back to the apartment, right? And they kept on going, you couldn't get rid of each other. <laughs> Because neither one of them wanted to leave the other one unattended, right? So, you know, it could go on forever. But that's the concept. The concept of the fact that uh, the smallest act counts in the Gemilas Hasodim roster. It doesn't have to be great things. It's small things. 
says in the Torah, God's chesed is forever. So the rabbi said again, Chaviva Yoser, it is the most beloved, more than charity, more than anything else. And we'll see even more startling statements regarding Torah itself. The Rambam in uh, Hilchus Matasaniim. Uh, J.M. in the A.M. with Harry Barrel Wine. His uh, lectures, uh, a very important part of our uh, nine days format. This one about the topic of responsibility from his Jewish Values series. Information at one eight hundred four nine nine W E I N or RabbiWine dot com. Rabbi W E I N dot com. J.M. in the A.M. I thank all of you for tuning in, being part of our nine days format. Monday, Erev. Tishabov, Yassi Baumel scheduled here from Stayrot to be in studio. Tuesday on Tishabov, Kinnis service with her by Goldwasser in the middle part of the program, usually from about 7.30 till 8.15. We'll do Kinnis live on the air on Tuesday. Wednesday will be the 10th of Av presentation, which is normally stories of Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, which Matis is going to be hosting this time around. And then Thursday from Yom NCSY in Israel. We'll be there starting on Thursday for the big trip as we um, get ready to uh, to celebrate and stay road and show solidarity with our brothers and sisters and to be part of a uh, a really fabulous week in the Holy Land. want to remind everybody that the uh, documentary from Project Witness on the 70th Years since the destruction of Hungarian Jury is being shown tonight up at the Monticello High School in the Catskill region. And it'll also be shown as well uh, for ladies only tonight at the Beis Yaakov of Borough Park in Borough Park, Brooklyn. So you'll have an opportunity to see it. I saw it on Monday night. It is quite a stirring documentary and certainly as appropriate as it always is to see it during the nine days, it really makes uh, quite an impression. So you can go and be part of that uh, this evening in uh, Borough Park, Brooklyn. Tomorrow morning we reconvene starting at 6 a.m. Our Barrel Wines Electra and Responsibility will be where we pick things up. Achenu Israel and Achim Achem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. And that wraps up our Wednesday program. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.